0: My fellow Westorians, I'm Aziz with a little extra energy today. And with me is Shea, also with a little extra energy today. And this is Valar Reredis. A Dance with Dragons is the longest of the books so far. It's also the darkest and least understood, thanks to being the most recent. It's the culmination, also so far, of George's style honed over the course of the prior books and his long career. It has the extended length of A Storm of Swords, the expanded pacing of A Feast for Crows. It brings POVs together like A Clash of Kings and has the grand setup of A Game of Thrones. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also send questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets and discussing there, like Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack. Please check out the Isle of Faces podcast. That's the Scraps and Scrolls edition. It is in tandem with us, that's Joe Buckley's show. Well, technically, we're at a, we're not in tandem for just this week. We'll be back in tandem shortly. But because we missed last week and he didn't know about it till, <laughs> till a few days had gone by, <laughs> we'll we'll be back in sync as of this week. But for those of y'all who didn't know, it may be transparent to you if you're listening to this later, but we had to miss last week's recording. So everything got bumped a week thanks to our old enemy, the Storm God. Of all the deities in A Song of Ice and Fire, the Storm God is absolutely the most problematic for podcasting and videos. Yes, (laughs) for obvious reasons. Although in this case, it was perhaps less obvious the particulars. We actually had a large tree fall down in our yard thanks to Hurricane Zeta. Actually, I'm calling it Hurricane Bon Jovi for completely arbitrary reasons. And so Hurricane Bon Jovi knocked over this tree. It, in fact, blocked our cul-de-sac, like locked out half the neighborhood or would have if another tree farther down the road also blocked, didn't block the cul-de-sac. So there were actually two trees blocking our cul-de-sac. We had no power for three whole days, no internet for seven days. Can you imagine? No internet for seven days.
1: I, that's what they feel like in Westeros. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> all the time. That's right. Uh, and what we were missing was, in part, was election day. It's kind of weird to be offline for election day, but kind of good because you know we weren't glued to our screens, which probably isn't so healthy, but very, very understandable. Anyway, that's a long way of saying we had a bit of an adventure last week, and and things were rescheduled. But everything is back in order now. Also, please check out Nina Freel on Tumblr. That's Good Queen Alley with one L. Her thoughts are all throughout every episode of Valoritas, and she's got a lot of great takes that are not related to Valor Arboretus. So you're going to want to check that out. You can also join us on Patreon, support us financially, help these episodes continue to come out at the rate they're coming. And with our quest to make each episode better and to improve ourselves, financial support really helps with that. Also, if you join Patreon, you can remove all network ads from your podcast. You will only hear anything that we put in, nothing that's added from our outside sponsors. So that's cool. A little uh, cut down a couple minutes out of every episode. Might be uh, something that's appealing. We also have lots of bonus episodes, access to scripts, fun things like that on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash history of Westeros to check it out. If Patreon doesn't work out for you, well, you can also try Anchor Support or PayPal. There's a lot of other ways we have. Today, Daenerys 3, the one where Zaro compares slavery to rain. AKA the coolest mapistry in Essos.
1: John 4, Beneath the Wall, AKA the one with a map to the Hill Clans.
0: Tyrion 5, Ruins of the Roin, AKA the one where Griff gets grayscale.
1: And Davos 3, the one with Frey Lies, AKA the gang meets the coolest green haired girl in Westeros.
0: Yeah. Today's themes include things like authenticity of education. While Danny and John are facing extremely difficult challenges as actual rulers getting real experience, young Griff is on a pole boat getting tutored and trained. Hey, that's something, but it's nothing like real experience. Our main characters are learning by doing. So this prepared claimant, the one Varus is going to later tell, at the end of the book, he's going to tell Kevin our guy has been suffering and struggling and learning what it means to do all these things. But compared to what Danny and John are doing right now, uh, he hasn't really struggled or suffered compared to any of these things. He hasn't had to make these difficult decisions. He hasn't had lives depending on it. Perhaps that's, that might be the biggest singular thing you can put down as a difference between them. One of our regular commenters, Stephanie the Peerless, who is herself an educator Puts it really well. She says, Young Griff is getting a great education, but few life lessons. Danny is getting an overdose of life lessons, but never had much education. John is getting both. He had great mentors and his life experiences. Well, we're seeing it. It's pretty expansive. It, it's very focused in the North, but as far as leadership and going through trials and tribulations, what he's faced is far beyond what Young Griff has faced to date. Rhaegar Targaryen comes up more than usual. Of course, all three of those characters are deeply connected to Rhaegar, perhaps fraudulently in one case, but still, he believes it's true. Barristan suggests Westeros will embrace Daenerys because she's Rhaegar's brother. But that's followed by two chapters of Rhaegar's sons. Jon, the real one, and Young Griff, probably not. Though this is the chapter where his identity as the heir to the throne and Rhaegar's son is explicitly revealed. Davos deals with an even bigger fake, however, a Frey named Rhaegar, who isn't pretending to be a Targaryen, but he's a very poor copy. Even if you don't like Rhaegar Targaryen, this Rhaegar Frey guy is, he's a one on the 10-point scale. There are a lot of rejected proposals today, too. Davos, of course, though it's only a pretend rejection and it's only a pretend comment when he says he wants an onion shoved in his mouth, Daenerys rejects Astapor, but the Envoy Gael, who spits on her, really does get the floor shoved into his mouth by Strong Belwas. She also rejects the notion of heading to Westeros prematurely from her own people and in the form of ships from Zaro. Jon rejects Stannis again over Winterfell and has to bargain to keep Stannis from rejecting his very good advice to not attack the Dreadfort. Maybe George R. R. Martin decided this portion of the book needed some comic relief. Because I feel like this time, this little short jaunt of chapters... I, I took note of more than the usual number of zingers and exchanges and one liners from people like, well, we got Dolarus, Ed, Stannis, Willa, Davos, and Daxos. Davos and Daxos, Zarro's oh, and that is. Even he has jokes with his talk of elephants perching on trees like nightingales. Daenerys three, the one where Zaro compares slavery to rain, aka the coolest. Mapistry in Essos. I must say, naming this chapter after that cool map is a bit indulgent, since the map really doesn't play much of a part. It's just really, really cool. It's so big and old, and I want it.
1: That's what she said.
0: (laughs) Unfortunately, in Danny Three, all the problems that were previously at least kept within the walls of Marine are now going to expand. Into all of Slaver's Bay. It's not just a Myrinese knot, Joe writes. It's really a whole Slaver's Bay knot, which, yeah, they're really all deeply connected. That's a good way to put it. What happens to one impacts the others. And this extends beyond Slaver's Bay, right? As Illyrio has told Tyrion, as Tyrion is becoming more and more aware, Daenerys's presence in Slaver's Bay, her taking of Marine and what she did with Young Kai and Astapor has had a global effect, or at least regional global effect, on the economies and on trade and things like that. So from here on out, she doesn't just have to deal with the Miranese, but she has to deal with agents backing the Miranese because they all want the Miranese to get back to slaving those jerks. So Astapor and Yunkai, they, that's what they're about. Volantis, all these other places, they want to get rid of Daenerys. Now, Karth gets in there too. So there is a lot of, lot of, lot of very powerful people who want Daenerys gone, and Zaro is just one of them. For a man as wealthy as Zaro, this offer he brings, 13 ships, and his argument, it's all put together. It's pretty weak. Again, except for the map, which I think is cooler than all the other stuff put together. So please, please give me any copies that you might have. Here's the first line of the chapter.
1: The dancers shimmered, their sleek, shaved bodies covered with a fine sheen of oil.
0: A couple people joked about how they were covered in oil and they're playing with fire. It's the same, like they're flipping torches and stuff. It's like, that seems dangerous. So this is an interesting moment here because Daenerys is still very young and her first experience like as a woman, like sexually, was with a man that she didn't really have any choice. She was forced to marry Drogo. And now she's kind of without pressure. I mean, there's political pressure on here. There's all sorts of pressure on her. She's getting to mm, have these thoughts and feelings on her own terms rather than being forced. This is also, of course, a buildup to her relationship with Dario, which is not long from getting thick into it. She thinks about him during this whole performance while again noticing that Zaro is into the men and not her. She's learned to put her own incredible beauty into perspective a bit because she's just so alluring, so beautiful that when people don't look at her like that, it's actually noticeable. <laughs> it's like, wait, he's not attracted to me. That's weird. <laughs> it might sound arrogant, but it's not. It's just, she's just really beautiful. And if if, if a man doesn't look at her as a beautiful woman, it's a little, str- it's not strange. It's a sign that, well, he's probably not into women. His diary says, no man with all his parts would not desire you. So she's starting to learn that and it's almost like maybe on the same track as Sansa where it's, it can, it's beginning to be a tool she can use in her arsenal in a variety of ways. But she hasn't really started doing that. Sansa, we're just seeing her start doing that. I wonder if Danny's going to do that. So anyway, in general, she's just picking up on these signals more. She's becoming a lot more savvy about how people react to her. And realizing that she has the upper hand there, (laughs) she's pretty much always got the upper hand there. But clearly not when it's someone like Zara who just isn't interested. That's a minor enough problem in terms of her priorities. After all, she's going to marry his dar soon after this. This is the chapter where that's really laid out, the political reasons for it. So she's already like a lot of, highborn, especially super highborn people, they understand that a loveless political marriage is not unlikely in their future. And the way Daenerys has positioned herself to reform this old ancient city with so many problems, it's, it's almost impossible that she won't have to you know, wear her rabbit ears from time to time. And, and this is, well, it, it sounds like more than wearing rabbit ears to have to get married, but that is the way of it. So he's just not very convincing though, Zaro himself. He's eloquent, right? That's something Danny notices that he makes these bad arguments about rain and slavery that I'll get into in a minute. And she thinks to herself, I know this is wrong, but he's just so eloquent and I can't put it into words properly. And that tells you something. That tells you that sometimes eloquence, sometimes the pe- person speaking is really good at speaking and that makes them more convincing than their actual points are. You can be swayed by arguments and, and by good demeanor and and charisma when the actual underlying points are pretty weak. And I think that's what's happening here, both with his offer of 13 ships. Danny actually considers it. She thinks, oh, yeah, well, their ship's are beautiful. But if she were to really sit there and add that up, like he's offering her 13 ships in exchange for a city <laughs> to return stability to their entire slaving industry. Like if this was a negotiation, she would ask for a lot more. It's not a negotiation, though, because she's not trying to leave. She entertains and notion she dreams on it. She's like, oh, it sure would be nice to go to Westeros. People like who she, whose opinion she values, is pushing her towards that. He's like, look, this is not your home. Your people there, they're waiting for you. That's where your home is. That's where you need to be. So it's one thing to see Zara wants her to leave because he wants to reform the slave trade and all these other things that other powerful people are pushing him to do. But even Barriston wants her to leave and he doesn't care about the slave trade in that site. He's obviously not economically motivated here. She can't just go, oh, it's just about money for these people, because there's other reasons too. But ultimately, it does come down to, if I leave, I'm screwing over a whole lot of people that I've claimed to protect. There's no way around that. If she leaves, they're getting slaughtered. They at least have to gain more power on their own. They have to be left in better shape than they are right now. It would be premature to leave right now. It would undermine everything she's done. There is a foundation of truth to Zara's argument about rain and slavery, but it's, ba- it's still bad, <laughs> of course. The, the foundation of truth is that, yeah, humans must labor and build in order to progress. There is indeed struggle involved, especially the farther back in history you go, the harder it was to eke out survival. We're all resting on the laurels of humanity that started tens of thousands of years ago progress in language and learning and just social hierarchy and social order and just decency, things like this that were worked out over the eons, we're all benefiting from that. You know, there's some negatives to it as well, but mostly we're taking up on old investments. We're incurring the interest on work done by people who came before. And that's just as true in Westeros and Essos. For example, there's always setbacks in human progress, but Take roads, for example, paths that aren't even paved. Those roads were paved by footfalls, walking back and forth, whether it's animals or people. That's one of the simplest examples of this. But a home, think about a house. In Zaro's example, he says, well, if everyone has to struggle to build a hovel, then no one can look to the stars. Well, most times people don't build a new house. They live in one that's already there. <laughs> Houses aren't rebuilt by every family that moves into them. Wealth accumulated prior to his birth. In fact, he doesn't properly credit this. Zara was born wealthy. He's an effective merchant. He's made more money with with his inheritance and things like that. He's a smart guy, but he doesn't understand these things. He doesn't understand how much labor was put into all these efforts. He doesn't understand that, yes, work must be done but efforts that provide benefit over generations are more valuable to a society than, say, a wonder of the world. Zaro looks at things like the Great Harpy or the Great Pyramids or any other work of mankind and thinks, well, without slavery, we can't have that. Well, first of all, that's just not true. The, the, our world is full of wondrous creations that did not involve slavery or even bad labor practices. You know, they were, people were paid for their work, communities organized, got things done. So I think he's got it backwards. I submit to you that you never know who amongst any group of humans is going to one day do something great or a group of them is going to do, some, do something great. Odds are you want as many of them, as many as possible, free from poverty, from struggle, so that, yeah, so they can lift their uh, to the skies. As many as possible. And That doesn't mean you have to be on the backs of others to do it. And Zaro says basic needs must be fulfilled. Well, how can we, you know, if we're building, breaking our backs, building hovels, then we can't progress. Where is the need for massive wealth and all that, Zaro? <laughs> the society needs some wealth to, to do its things, but why do these individuals need ridiculously large amounts of money? That doesn't progress humanity unless, right? If is out there building monuments, roads, hospitals, then I would shut up, right? He's doing good things with his money, but he's not. He built a big palace to live in for himself he says who shall raise temples to glorify the gods if each of us must break his back to build a hovel communities build temples all the time it's an incredibly enduring and straightforward fact of human history another great example of this concept in this chapter
1: olives had been grown along the shores of slaver's bay for centuries but the miranese had put their ancient groves to the torch as danny's host advanced on them leaving her to cross a blackened wasteland. We are replanting, but it takes seven years before an olive tree begins to bear and 30 years before it can truly be called productive.
0: So once those trees are 30 years old, they provide food for many. And these, apparently these trees have been there for centuries. So for centuries, they've had productive olive groves feeding lots of people. Now it's gone. It'll be back. This is the point in that struggle, right? Right. Once those olive tree, once you reach that thirty year point, then this entire society, assuming those trees stick around, is pa- more is stronger they're more f- fertile their their people are less likely to starve. This is the the value of building infrastructure in advance that future generations can benefit from when wealth is hoarded, that effect is muted or entirely destroyed. It depends on you know right if the wealth is spent on Oh, I want to have fancy dinners every night, or if you know you're building projects, building fountains and things like that. Of course, there's a lot of in between. You can do both, right? There's still room for some luxury. There's room for some excess. People can be rich and and still be decent, Of course, that's not impossible by any means. But what we're seeing is the extremes of when that goes wrong. Slavery is that is the farthest point along that track of there's no middle ground, right? Well, yeah, why why do the lowest among us have to be so low and denigrated and have no dignity? That's why Danny's task is so, so incredibly difficult. Look at Bravos. Not only is it super against slavery, but it's the wealthiest and probably strongest of all the free cities. Maybe Volantis can match it, but I think (laughs) <laughs> and once another book goes by, I think we'll be that argument will be done. I think Volantis is in big trouble, whereas Bravos
1: might be fine. And they built the incredible Titan of Bravos. And on the
0: subject of building wonders, perfect example. In fact, Nina writes that here as well. She cites that. So I'm glad you mentioned it. It's it's super true. They did that. I mean, it's incredible. Like slave labor has not made Bravos so powerful. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and praise the Iron Bank. But that is a financial powerhouse that didn't do anything, that doesn't have any overt ties to slavery. And well, they've done powerful things without <laughs> without that need. So Zaro's arguments are disproven by the world building. We can put it that simply, I think. Nina points and it cites another example here. The arsenal of Bravos, they can make a war galley in one day. What slaving culture can do that? Because the problem is in order to, that... that uh, that's uh, skilled labor. It's extremely skilled labor. And it's hard to have abject slavery and have lots of skill. He says we curse the rain when it falls on our heads, but we need it to grow our crops. Do we really though? I mean, yes, we do for the crops part Wait, Of course,
1: so they curse the rains down in yeah, and we bless the rain
0: And <laughs> <In> castimir. <laughs> I bless the rains down in castimir. I mean, no, we, do we really curse the rain? I think it's, it's a bummer sometimes, sure. Your picnic gets canceled. The ball game gets postponed. But these aren't things we really get angry over. <laughs> They're inconveniences. This is a pretty blatant false equivalence. Yeah, we need rain, but it, it <laughs> it's, it's vital to our survival. So this is not a balance against uh, an inconvenience when our social event gets postponed. I mean, come on. But a guy like Zara who's, Gets whatever he wants because he's wealthy. He can tell, he can snap his fingers and a fancy meal is prepared for him. He might get angry at rain because everything's always going his way all the time. When your needs and luxuries are met at all times, well, that's where entitlement can, can sometimes sneak its way in. Heck, people pray for rain or do dances or prayers or sacrifices. I mean, compare that to the people who curse the rain. Like, ah, oh, it's raining again. Other people over here are like, man, we need this to live. But of course, the end goal of all this eloquence, of Zara's eloquence. Is he just wants her to leave. That's the point behind all this. He'll say whatever he needs to say. He says it very flowering, uh, very flowery, he's very nice, very eloquent. But then he starts to get into his into compassion. He's like, look, if your goal is to end suffering, then look at all the suffering happening right now that wasn't there before you. He's playing on her inexperience there too because of course, when you're tearing a society, building it, tearing it down to rebuild it, there's got to be a lot of pain. There's got to be some suffering. There's just no way around that. So that argument shouldn't work, but it does a little bit. It definitely gets at her a little bit. He's also exaggerating in terms of the military situation. He says, the Wise Masters have hired the Golden Company and all these other sellsword companies. Like soon they'll have 10 sellsword companies against you. If we look forward, that's, pretty much the opposite of how it's going to go. Eventually the golden company will be Danny's enemy. But as things stand right now, I mean most likely, but as things stand right now, the golden company is trying to marry Danny to Aegon and be like be on her side. In reality, at the moment they're no threat to her. If not for Tyrion's interference, they would have probably come to join her. So that's that's not accurate at all there, Zaro. And there's a little reference to Aegon being a blackfire here. Danny remembers her brother feeding the golden company, like entertaining them. It says ate his food and heard his pleas and laughed at him. Illyrio might have insisted the golden company would support Aegon because he was a Targaryen who could take them home. But clearly, that's a Targaryen who could have taken them home. But they they laughed at him. So maybe there is, maybe Illyrio's a little wrong here. Maybe, or maybe he was just saying that to Tyrion to sway his, his concerns. But Point being, when Illyrio says a dragon is a dragon, they just want to go home. That's probably not true. The, the question is whether or not he believes it himself. Other companies that get that, that are named the Company of the Cat, the Long Lances, and the Windblown. Well, the Windblown's going to flip to Danny too, as we well know. Uh, Zaro perceives that Danny's massively outweighed in terms of political power and wealth. Maybe he's not wrong there, but she's got a lot of these most powerful and wealthy type people in a dangerous spot. In other words, she could kill them not too, not too difficult without too much difficulty. Her Unsullied outclass any other soldiers in the region by far. And that's where Zaro's expertise falls flat. He is not an expert on military matters. He just looks at numbers. He's like, we've got a lot of money. We've got more soldiers. It's someone like Barristan and, and, and Dario, guys who actually have an, a sense of the quality of these armies and aren't going to rely on just counting quantity because it's definitely quality over quantity in armies. That is made abundantly clear in John's chapters too. There's one thing Zoro does understand pretty well, that he's not naive or inexperienced on his trade. So there's another important issue here. Trade between nations, the development of the process. Again, this is a part of a society and a civilization that takes a while to build up. But once it's there, it can be a mutually beneficial arrangement across many generations, if not longer. Has to get started first. And like so many other things, there's disruptions, restarts, resets, exceptions, compromises. But once it's healthy and flowing, it has enormous benefit to humankind at a very base and high level. All throughout society, there's benefits to that. So that's one of the important things she wants to restore. But of course, they're trying to force her into compromising on slavery as part of that. Or to just leave entirely. (laughs) So now we have the Brazen Beast deployed now, uh, officially, we, we talked about that a little bit last time that it was coming and now here they are, the Unsullied are no longer being used as police. It's a bit confusing if you think of the TV show's imagery because on the, on the show, the Sons of the Harpy are the ones wearing masks so that they look scary and their identities are hidden. Here, it's the opposite. It's the law enforcement that are under threat. So the, the Sons of the Harpy are gonna kill families of anyone who signs up for the Brazen Beast. They're gonna target their families. So of course they need to keep their identity secret because they don't want their families to get targeted. That's very straightforward. But of course, it's going to have side effects down the line. A society with masked police, that's not great in the long run. I mean, you can totally see why they're doing it now. But you can also totally see how that would cause problems later when you're just like, well, I don't know which police officer that was that did this awful thing to me. It doesn't even have to be a real. It could be an imposter. It could be a like Quentin Martel. <laughs> they put on brazen beast masks and... Well, it almost worked, <laughs> but it worked for a while. They got past other brazen, they fooled other members of the organization. So, mm, yeah, it's a more of this general pastiche of fixing huge, eons long, thousand-year-old long problems involves incremental progress. So the fallout from Astapor is, of course, Danny's first lesson in how you can't just wreck a city And appoint new leaders and leave. Uh, It takes more than that. And this is part of why she realizes she has to stay in Marine.
1: Enough, Danny slapped the table. No one will be left to die. You are all my people. Her dreams of home and love had blinded her. I will not abandon Marine to the fate of Astapor. It grieves me to say so, but Westeros must wait.
0: So the temptation was there. I addressed this a little bit earlier, and it's the same. It was very similar for John, and John's similar temptation will be r- uh, brought up in his chapter, which is next, which is Winterfell. That which is what he thinks of home, but he has to turn it down just like she does because of duty for taking care of people that depend on her, taking care of commitments that she made, following through. Really well done by George to show this level of conflict and how difficult this is. Talk about conflict. No one knows what to do here. I mean, that's that's part of what makes it so great. Is no one is like, oh well, if she just does this or that. Like, where in our personal experience do we have anything that would tell us how to handle a situation like this? Danny doesn't want to burn and destroy and leave cities in the dust. She wants growth and life and motherhood and all these other things. At the same time, she's constantly questioning herself whether she's capable of that. She keeps calling herself a monster. She thinks about how dragons. You know, they don't sew other things. You know, it's like a Greyjoy, right? <laughs> so it's, there's a lot for her to work with. It seems that Nina and a few people noticed this. I didn't actually, but now it makes sense that I've seen it. Zaro seem, seems keenly interested in her guards. He brings up Barristan's weakness. He brings up the Blood Riders not being around, talks about the Unsullied things like that, asks for a private audience. So it might mean that he's kind of checking out her security okay, this is this is how well she's guarded and this is that. So they could maybe send an assassin or something like that. So I think there's some merit to that because for one thing, we absolutely 100% know they want her dead slash gone and they're absolutely willing to murder. So even if we aren't aware of a specific murder plot against her, it's extremely clear that they would do that if they could. Now, uh, another note about her authorization of torture last chapter, Nina writes... If we want to look at that as evidence of increasing violence or madness in her, well, it was violent, but it wasn't mad, I don't think. I mean, it was anger, like temper anger, not madness. For example, she's very calm in the spot where Gail spits in her face. And she says, look, chill, guys. No one's ever died from spittle. Other commenters pointed out that this might be a little ironic foreshadowing given the pale mare is about to arrive and spittle is probably about to be quite dangerous. And many people will die from it still. <laughs> the point here is to show her restraint and to show that she's balancing the needs of her people well above herself. She's like, look, it's just spit in my face. Like my, my pride is not that big a deal, which I, I really appreciate that. That's really good. I mean, it's similar to what we get from John and, and these other characters who really try to, They put a lot of real heartfelt effort into how to lead. I think about it a lot. They don't always get it right because who would? But the process is noble, and we see it in, in their heads constantly. Now, here's a really important line from Zaro. Of all the silly things Zaro says, all his bad arguments, this one we must pay attention to. It's the famous dragons equal Lightbringer line.
1: When your dragons were small, they were a wonder. Grown, they are death and devastation. A flaming sword above the world.
0: Yeah, a flaming sword above the world. So You can't not think of Lightbringer of Azor Ahai when you hear that, right? Especially when he's also talking of tempering swords, of, of beating the metal, folding it over and over, which reminds us of the, the origin story of Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa. And then he talks about trees having to be watered in blood and things like that, of sacrifices made, which again, Nissa Nissa was a sacrifice of sorts. And... There isn't a whole lot more on that in this chapter, but it's, it's important build-up on the stepping stones of Daenerys realizing she's also or fully coming to terms with the fact that she is some kind of child of destiny here, perhaps, uh, for lack of better term. By the end, Zaro's flowery protestations and arguments become straight up threats. He said, he wiped away tears. I should have slain you in Karth, he says. And then he also says, or you will surely die screaming if you don't change course or whatever. So that is a very different, much like Danny notices how he doesn't look at her like a woman. (laughs) She notices that when his extreme courtesy just vanishes, when the velvet glove turns to the steel gauntlet, right? The good cop turns bad cop. And in and on that same line, the glove versus the gauntlet, well, he leaves a bloody glove, which Danny unmistakably recognizes as symbolic for war, as a, hey, we've declared war on you now. And, well, she's right. Interestingly, though, let's talk about Quaith for a second. She's not in this chapter. A lot of y'all were commenting on Quaith because of people who are coming to Danny, right? The Pale Mare, the Dark Flame, Kraken Lions, Sun Sun, all that. Well, Quaith doesn't mention Zaro. Quaith didn't mention those 13 ships. Quaith doesn't mention any sort of, doesn't mention the warlocks either. Well, we know why she doesn't mention the warlocks. The warlocks were grabbed by Euron, so they're not actually coming anymore. But she didn't mention Zaro, perhaps because he's not a threat. Perhaps you just don't worry about him. If you want to get real conspiratorial, Quaith is from Karth. Quaithe is like going into Danny's head with a glass candle, telling her to focus on what matters most. Well, maybe she's just saying that to get Danny to get the hell out of Slavers Bay because she wants slavery to back also. This could be just one of many attempts to get Daenerys to go. After all, that's what her goal is. She's like Quaithe is trying to get Danny to leave. Also, she says she has different motivations, and I tend to believe her. But we should consider that Quaithe is <laughs> that there's a cynical element here that Quaithe is actually just like on team. Slavers, on-team economy here. <laughs> get, get her gone so that we can get back to becoming filthy rich again. So I, I think that's worth considering because of who Quaithe warns her about and who, who, who's left out. Uh, we've talked about how Marwyn isn't mentioned either. And, hmm, well, so that that is, hmm, that is curious for sure. Michael Shelton says, interesting that Westeros is often seen to be backwards in comparison to Essos, but when it comes to slavery, Westeros is actually much more advanced. Uh, Jaded Redhead said, eh, Westeros is British Empire. Technically, they did, they did not have slavery in England, but it was allowed in all the colonies. Yeah, I guess that's a... I, I agree with both of y'all. Uh, Jaded Redhead is completely right that England allowed slavery in its colonies, and that's kind of a a cheap kind of way to say they don't have it. But I also agree that, that with what Michael is saying, which is that you can't just look at technology for advancements. Cultural advancements are advancements. When you have a whole society... Is think slavery is abhorrent like Westeros is, that's a really good thing. That's really good. That does not come from nowhere. You really need that sort of consensus to prevent it from ever taking root. To have it seen as such an evil abomination thing, that's good. That doesn't come from nowhere. That, That is education. Their people had to teach other people why it was wrong. They had to fight and scrap to get that notion settled in society. A lot of us would just look at that and go, yeah, of course slavery is evil and expect that most of the rest of us would just see it that way. But no, people can acknowledge slavery is evil and still do it because they don't care. Here's Here's a great burn from Zara that I missed. Tree Girl caught this. The line is, would my lord prefer something sweeter? Zara says, Sweetness cloys. Tart fruit and tart women give life its savor. Zaro took another bite, chewed, swallowed. Daenerys, sweet queen, I cannot tell you what pleasure gives me to bask once more in your presence. So he just says, tart women, tart, and, tart women are better than sweet women. And then he just calls her a sweet woman one sentence later. So he just totally burned her there and she didn't even notice. And neither did I. That's really good. Stefan B with another uh, piece of evidence that maybe connects Quaithe to Zorro. He says, you should have turned north when you should have turned south. It really does kind of sound like what Quates is saying. It was like, eh, I don't think we have enough to go on to really put those two together in terms of plotting together. But they did just, you know, walk out of Carth together to meet Daenerys at the same time. So it's definitely not uh, definitely not tinfoil. It's it's just not super supported. No go. Frankel says, maybe Westeros is so anti-slavery because so much of them are Andals who escaped Valyria's rising powers. Yes, that is 100% true. I've, I've made this point before. I'm glad you uh, brought that up because I neglected to mention it here the Andals were constantly attacked by the Valyrian expansion they were pressured by Valyrian expansion and in fact if you look at Andal cultural values they're polar opposites to Valyrian cultural values and so I think that so I think this fits really well with that first of all knighthood is all about protect the weak defend the weak slavery is basically says enslave the weak that's pretty much the opposite right then you have things like uh, these taboos like incest, right? Andals are really against incest, but Valerians are all for it. So it would be one thing if like they just didn't have an opinion on it, but they're opposites on so many of these cultural points that I have to say, yes, it seems very likely that some of these opposing viewpoints developed because they were pressured by much more powerful Valeria. Jonathan Hagee says, the first men may have been following skin changer rules. Possessing another is an abomination. Oh, very good. Very good call. Yes, Hagen says controlling another person is abomination. So so maybe they did have their own growing pains with that concept. If you had enough first men born with skin changing power and maybe a few of them could take over the bodies of other people, yeah, you could see why that would be over time. Society would reject that um, and think of it as as evil and reject anyone who... Engages in such things. So yeah, you can see that and you can see that spreading to other similar structures throughout their society. Lots of really good comments from y'all on this chapter. Thank you very much. John 4, Beneath the Wall, aka the one with a map to the hill plans. We're given a sense of how long it's been since the last chapter, which is that the so-called Wrong Way Rangers have returned. So they went out, did some talking to different lords and have and come back. That can't have been too quick. And we're not talking, you know, like a year, but we're, we're probably talking at least a month, maybe more. As the tunnels under the wall, which are called the Wormways, twist and turn cleverly, so does this chapter weave and connect to nearby chapters. Logistical issues like food supply and disloyalty are problems Danny must deal with, and John as well. Tyrion is made to give advice to a wannabe king about dragons and strategy, and they expect his knowledge of Westerosi noble houses to be of great value. And here, John is doing the same, minus the dragon's part, giving Stannis advice about northern castles, lords, and peoples. Hmm. Davos's plotline is perhaps more straightforward in how it might impact John. When one thinks of the north doing the bulk of the charitable giving to the Night's Watch, the, the Night's Watch really depends on the northern lords. Well, White Harbor, as rich as it is, you got to figure that's a pretty important contributor, if not a very crucial contributor. The connection to Theon. Is also easy enough to see via the very first line. Careful of the rats, my lord. Later, John will think that rats could be a source of meat if need be. He's thinking of the night fort, but still, Theon is really such a trendsetter here. Theon lost limbs before Jamie or Tyrion. He took Winterfell before Ramsey and he eats rats before John. So, real trendsetter for sure. Down amidst all the food stores, I imagined what would happen if somehow the others. Use their magic, their raised dead magic, on this.
1: The walls were ice bristling with iron hooks. From each hook hung a carcass, skinned deer and elk, sides of beef, huge sows swinging from the ceiling, headless sheep and goats, even horse and bear. Poor frost covered everything.
0: Mm, I don't think it's super likely that this mass freezer of meat will rise and attack. But it is possible. And a creepy, cool idea. And, you know, John does think about how the room feels colder than it should. So there's a little, you know, there's some ominousness going on here. Instead of food giving them life, it comes to life to try to kill them. Talk about a food fight, right? <laughs> this also reminds us of a lot of other things. Like I said, this, this chapter has a lot of parallel themes. Bran going down to the cave tunnel, seeing all the skulls and and bones and all that. Evidence of dead things. And, and then we have Tyrion going down river on the Shy Maid with all these dead cities and statues underwater and and stone men and things like that. So lots of imagery that feels familiar here. And Nina writes that John wonders how much his brothers will complain when they're down to eating snow and acorn paste. He's thinking of his Night's Watch brothers and his, his quote brother Bran was doing that recently, eating crushed acorns and snow. I mean, we saw that literally, that, a, that exact meal, <laughs> crushed a, crushed a, uh, acorn paste and melted snow.
1: A uh, little aside, just the other day, one of our roommates was talking about what eating an acorn would be like. And I said, well, in Westeros, they have make an acorn paste and it doesn't sound good.
0: No, it sounds terrible. So, note that Dollar Ed brings up cannibalism again. He's just kind of joking. He's like, I know, I know why Stan let the wild legs through the wall so we could eat them. Yeah. And not entirely a joke because cannibalism is popping up everywhere and people are starving. And we've already seen that, yeah, people are going to eat each other. So, maybe these particular people won't get eaten, but it's real as it can get. And we're dealing with it in almost every chapter. Now, Dollar's Head is with John, of course, but the two men he talks to, that they meet at the bottom of the stairs to discuss these food logistics as Bo and Marsh and Wick Whittlestick, and those are two of the assassins. Nina wonders if maybe Wick was brought into the conspiracy because of his knowledge or placement in these wormways. She wonders if maybe the original plan wasn't to capture John, to semi-impeach him, like imprison him, lock him in a tower, and then go about their business the way they think that what should be run. Because remember, Bowen Marsh is crying when he stabs John. He clearly isn't doing it out of malice. He clearly didn't make the decision lightly. Now, not unlike Ned Stark, Jon Snow's moral centering is very hard to criticize. Like, you can't tell, John, you're morally wrong here. <laughs> you almost never have the occasion to say that. But his leadership style, there is room to criticize. There's some significant issues there, I think. And this is something I focus on a decent bit, and the one that I think is most important is how he's not very good at explaining himself. He's a do what as I say kind of leader, and he doesn't really work to build consensus amongst his sub commanders, which is just not a good way to go about it, I think. And at the same time, if you're going to be the like my way or the highway type leader, you don't want to be the also be the I'm not. Really a lord guy <laughs> Like the rejecting the trappings of power You need to have that sort of Authority if you're going to expect people to Just do what you say You need to project That kind of charisma And prominence and authority in the first place But John is doing the opposite He's eschewing authority Through his person He doesn't want to look like an authority figure He wants it all to be through his words Which is a little naive I think um, it's, it's cynical and he, he, he rejects it because he he sees the evil in that system. He sees the problem. He sees the corruption inherent in that. But it's the way the world is and he has to reckon with what it is, not what he wants it to be. To someone like Stannis, he wants to act like he's like Stannis in a lot of ways. He this. He follows the laws and he's, does the rules in certain ways. But Stannis does a lot of things to project his authority. People do not do a lot of talking back to Stannis, right? They, they'll argue a little bit, but he'll be like, shut up. And they shut up, <laughs> right? Like Stannis, you don't argue with Stannis very much. You know, Stannis has this authority when he, when he speaks, people listen. That's taken some time to build that up. But part of it is having a crown. You know, Stannis is, he doesn't dress up big. But he carries that sword around. He carries his crown. He, he's got Melisandre with him. He still projects power, even if he's not all. Does he
1: carry the crown or wear it? <laughs> just picture Santa's He's carrying. just holding
0: it in his hand, yeah. <laughs> he, he doesn't wear, like, gemstones. He doesn't project wealth, but he does project authority. But as far as Bowen Marsh's takes on how bad the food situation is, we shouldn't probably guess that he's embellishing. Uh, I, think he, I think he's a decent guy there. He might be, though. We should consider the possibility, but I don't think we should jump to that conclusion uh, because it does set up a situation where John's authority immediately is undermined because he's taken charge very recently. All of a sudden, not only is he allowing wildlings through the wall, but he's cutting their food rations. That's just going to engender people being mad at him. Uh, for very basic reasons, you know, like being hangry. Frankly, (laughs) who thinks clearly? Who is at their best? Who is at their most rational when they're hungry? Very few of us. And so right away, he's making the entire night's watch through necessity. It's not like he doesn't have a choice here, or it's not like he has a choice here, rather. But that's going to set up the situation where it might be easier to mutiny, right? So you got to wonder, maybe maybe Bowen is stepping on the scales a little bit here, to push the issue. Uh, But also, he just doesn't want John to accept the wildlings. At this point, he's still arguing against that. He's like, he, he still thinks he can get John to do otherwise. Rattle Mance here is a part of this chapter. He gives a line that really changes on Riri. This is pretty fun.
1: Here he comes, he said when he saw John, the brave boy who slew Mance Raider when he was caged and bound. The big square-cut gem that adorned his iron cuff glimmered redly. Do you like my ruby, Snow? A token of love from Lady Red.
0: I wonder if Mance understands what John was really doing by shooting him him, (laughs) with those arrows. There was some mercy in it, sure, but it was more about the Night's Watch doing justice on a traitor and deserter, which are among the worst things you can be. So I think Mance probably does know because he knows John. He's met John, and 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 Mance is a really good judge of character. He doesn't actually think John was just trying to claim the glory of killing the king beyond the wall. That's not John, and Mance knows better. So I think he's playing it up a little. He's acting the part. Well, there's one line he says where uh, he offers to sing pretty songs for John, which is maybe a clue that it's Mance because Rattleshirt offering to sing. Eh, Maybe, but still, Mance is the singer. So that just fits.
1: Pretty sure that Rattle Shirt plays like the maracas.
0: <laughs> he, he just, what's and that, he the, the, the Zydeco rattle. thing where yeah. they, scrape, they, they scrape the, the yeah. mallets along the bones there? Like, he could, he's, he, he could be a musician, actually, but not a singer. So if the first part of the chapter is all about logistics, right? Food logistics, and we really wonder how that's going to go, but, but we have some sense of how food works, right? What I don't quite know, this, the logistics of this,
1: so long as he wears the gem, he is bound to me, blood and soul, the red priest has said. This man will serve you faithfully. The flames do not lie, Lord Snow. Perhaps not, John thought, but you do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, how does that work? It's like a new form of magic, sort of. The, the, the idea of total control is not through magic. I mean, cold hands or regular whites are arguably being controlled by their master. Hodor being controlled by Bran. We just got through talking about how skin changing might affect the views of slavery in a larger cultural context. And of course, regular old slavery, brutal master-slave relationship is no supernatural necessarily involved there, but still, that's what we're dealing with here. All these different forms of control. So does it really work as well as Melisandre says? Is it really that strong? Is he really that bound? Can he really not do anything? Is his free will really that removed? So... It's a very bold statement that it's that airtight, his service. Uh, And will anyone else? That's another huge question. Is Melisandre going to slap one of these on someone else or is Makoro going to or Banero or just any red priest anywhere? This is not going to be the only time we see this is kind of where I'm going with that. But I really have no idea where else it could land. I really don't think this will be a one-time thing though. As for the actual campaign, in northern campaign. It's a major feature of this chapter. It's one of the, maybe the biggest feature of this chapter, certainly the, the part that has the most written about it. We've discussed the Karstarks and Umbers and Reek One already, but it's notable that Jon tells them the best way to test the norther's loyalty is to have them make a promise in front of a heart tree. And he says that in regard to Food Umber, aka Morse. But Godry leads the room in laughing at that notion because they're like, you guys are silly tree worshipers. (laughs) Stannis doesn't really seem to take the suggestion, but it's a good one because yeah, Northerners take that seriously. It's another example of where a little bit of perspective amongst these leaders, quote unquote, leaders would really make their day easier, make their life easier. if They could just not denigrate, not take their own personal views of someone else's religion as evidence of how serious they take it. Now, this one might actually be foreshadowing. Here's here's a little. Let's relook really at this line.
1: You would make his grace look weak. I say, show our strength. Burn last hearth to the ground and ride to war with Crowfood's head mounted on a spear as a lesson to the next lord who presumes to offer half his homage. His yeah, homage.
0: <laughs> his homage. <laughs> or half his homage. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Godry speaking again. Godry, the giant slayer. And, well, minor spoiler, I know we talk about T-WOW spoilers all the time. This one maybe is off your radar. There's a one page of an Asha chapter that s- sort of got spilled online because George had a picture taken in, while sitting next to his computer. And there was actually the Asha chapter was visible on his screen, barely. <laughs> so you could see him writing it when people were like, zoom and enhance. And, well, in that one chapter, Crowfood's head is mounted on a spear. <laughs> so, whoa. <laughs> Yikes, it wasn't Godry the Giant Slayer doing it though, nor was it even Stannis' man. It appears to have been the phrase that did it. So, which makes sense, because again, Crowfood is the one outside Winterfell digging pit traps and things like that. So he's he's in the proximity. But of course, that's not a sure thing. Like maybe George changed his mind. If it's not a finished published chapter, we can't be 100% sure that's how it's going to come out. When John asks if Stannis has gained other lords, Melisandre interrupts with a vision of a wooden town filled by particular northern banners, which Clayton Suggs names as Hornwood, Sirwyn, Tallheart, Riswell, and Dustin. Now, all these are all gone over to Bolton's, like we learned uh, as we learned in Davos's chapter last week. But who's missing the Manderleys? This is very similar to the, what, this this type of analysis we've been doing with Quaithe's vision. We see who Quaith named. But we wonder curiously at who Quaithe didn't name. Some of the names are suspicious. They're left out. Same thing here. No Manderley flag seen at Barrowton. That's really important. So John starts to think maybe the White Harbor isn't with the Boltons after all. And Stannis is dismissive of that. He's like, nope, they haven't answered my letters. They're doing their thing. Forget them. Mistake, Stannis. But maybe one that will be repaired. So this is a a very much a hinge point, as Joe writes, for this Northern plot. This could have been the end of Stannis, but John convinces him that his plan is bad. Bad, bad, bad plan. Don't just attack the Dreadfort. And John doesn't even realize how right he is. John isn't even suspecting a trap, which there is. The the Boltons were setting a trap. It almost worked. They intentionally left, what Stannis says is they left their throat open. I'm going to rip it out. But they did that on purpose. They knew Stannis would see that. That was their plan. So, But John is just like, look, your plan isn't going to work for other reasons. He's like, look, for, first of all, you can't take the Dreadfort quickly. Uh, for one thing, the land around it is their land, and they will see you coming. You will not sneak up on it. Second of all, your plan requires Moat Cailin to be a delay for them. Part of the reason they're marching is they know that the Boltons have marched to Moat's Cailin. So they're like, ah, they're down south. Let's, here's our chance. But no... They're thinking like Southerners. They're thinking, oh, no one ever takes Mo Kalen. That's going to take forever. But again, we know better. The North knows better. It's hard to take from the South. From the North, it's not hard at all. Well, maybe not hard, but it's no big deal as far as a large army is concerned. And as we're going to see, an army won't be needed. Only a single solitary reek will take care of that. So, again, so Stannis' plans, as you can see, fraught with issues. Based on not knowing the people and terrain and culture of the North. John's advice is thus extremely vital. We'll talk more about Mukalen when we actually see it, which is, I think, next week. Yeah, next week. The chapter sequencing is loud and clear here. Again, as we pointed out in Danny's chapter, she was tempted by the notion of home and all that. But here, John faces similar temptation, but rejects it as he did before. He says, My sword is sworn to the night's watch. That's the end of it. Duty. First, he then, of course, advises Stannis on the Mountain Clans, how to get them. Of course, Stannis is like three thousand men. Yeah, bring it, my friend. <laughs> Stannis is still even still a little rude about it, but that's Stannis for you. Something strikes me about this too: John is extremely thorough with his explanations to Stannis. Very much a contrast to how he is not thorough with his explanations to his own sub commanders. Which I don't know what to say. I don't know how to read that. I don't know what, what it means. Maybe it's just the way it, one is leadership versus subordinacy. Like he as a leader, he isn't explaining himself. But when he's someone above him is forcing him to explain, he does a good job of it. Might be just that simple. But I wonder if there's more to it. So definitely I'm curious what you all think. Absolutely. Let me know if you have more takes on that. So and because of John's advice, off to Deepwood Mott for the for Sanderson's Army. It's great advice attack the Ironborn, the mutual enemy of the North, rather than fighting the Boltons, who many of the Northerners are allied with. Better to peel support away from the Boltons, better to show that he's a better choice than to take them on directly, especially while they're stronger, right? Uh, Nina writes, what this chapter really does is ramp up the struggle for John. This is the difficulty, the challenge, the leadership challenges that we were spoken well, we were speaking about at the beginning that is a theme for a lot of these chapters. His, his conflicts to this point have been relatively easy to deal with or at least face with neutrality. He hasn't had to take sides. And that's really important. When you, The Night's Watch is supposed to not take sides. So when they don't have to, well, that's that's easy. But when they're put in a position where they kind of have to sort of take a, a, a side a little bit or, you know, and while not acting like they are, like in the case of Stanage just being there and they just really have not a lot of choice, they have to give him something. They have to give him a little of what he wants or their own mandate is broken. Then they're no longer able to defend the wall. It's like what Jamie says, you know, these oaths conflict in order to fulfill one oath, you have to break another one. This is why I have a lot of sympathy for John breaking some of his oaths because technically he does. But the reasons he does are, I think, beyond the honor of keeping an oath. The things compelling him to break the oaths are morally greater than the value of keeping oath. And I don't say that lightly. I've realized that oaths are important. And in this world, Westeros, they're arguably even more important than they are in our own world. They, they arguably are treated more sacredly. It's really important to think of it that way, that you don't break oaths lightly. You know, Bowen Marsh crying while stabbing John has a much different feel to it than, God, I hate this guy. I'm going to stab him and get rid of him so we can do things my way, right? No, he's, he's defending values, not personal views. Well, he's doing both. Nina also points out the difficulty for the reader in conflict because yes, these aren't equal situations as far as where, who we're rooting for. For John to maintain neutrality, he has to not help the guys that we clearly like more. You don't have to like Stannis to, be, to rank Stannis ahead of the Boltons, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, maybe you don't like Stannis, but who, who stands the Boltons non-ironically? Like some people, you can be fans of them as, as, as fans, right? But if, you, if they were real people, you would hate them. So it's hard because you want John to help Stannis, especially against the Boltons. And you, you want the Ironborn kicked out of Deepwood Mop, probably. So you kind of, this advice is satisfying our, who we're rooting for. It's satisfying some things on an emotional level for us. But, but also from a duty, law, justice, it might feel a little off. So, and that's really well done by George creating that level of conflict. At first, he's just giving advice and words, but then he has to give spears and helmets too because he's kind of like kind of forced into it. He doesn't actually do that. He, he agrees to give 300 spears and helmets to, to Stannis to outfit his wildlings army. But then he talks Stannis out of actually using the wildling army. So he probably didn't give those give that equipment to Stannis after all. But the fact is he was willing to. And here, Another question here. We're, this is difficult for John, but... WWJD. That's a phrase people say, what would Jesus do? I don't mean Jesus here. What would Gior do? What would Mormont have done in John's place if he were still Lord Commander? Would he have broken any oaths to to prevent other oaths from being broken? Probably. Because what else is he going to do? Just sit there and die? Uh, So another point here is that Stannis in his stubbornness is sort of treating Jon not like the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, but kind of like the Stark in Winterfell, which is what he wanted them to be. He's asking him these, these kind of questions of like, tell me about these Northern Lords. Stannis knows that he's not supposed to ask the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch there in his strictest of senses. But again, it's Stannis' ends justify the means. Another case where I think Stannis being a law and order guy is a little bit exaggerated because he breaks the rules all the time when they suit him. He just prioritizes. He's like, well, look, break, upholding this rule is more important than upholding this rule. It's a very similar concept to this oath supersedes this oath. It's almost like Stannis has accepted that yeah, we sometimes we got to break rules because rules conflict with each other. And it's like other people conflict. Other people go back and forth on that. And Sandus is like, nope, that's just how it is. It just happens sometimes. So I, I, something else that makes Stannis kind of a compelling character is how, like a lot of people. There's some baked-in hypocrisy, like humanity, like all of us have some baked-in hypocrisy in our existence. We all have our biases and things like that.
1: Yeah, I think we obviously we all do. I think Stannis is just particularly egregious. He gets so on his high horse about it right. that when he is a hypocrite, I, you know,
0: he's less uh, self-reflective on it. I think. Yeah, um, yeah. He does. He does have at least a little of that, though. He's like when he he did at least one thing. He when he admitted that Davos was right about claiming how to win the throne about being a king rather than demanding the throne. John also pays, is paying attention to the fact of the breakdown of Stannis' men and the Queen's men. We're going to get to know the Queen's men a little better when Solis shows up, which is soon, but he's noticing how few of the King's men are actually around Stannis. He, it's not, he thinks that some of them are upset, or he's upset with some of them, That Stannis is mad at some of his own men because of the Edric Storm thing. That's not entirely true. It's partly true. But remember how little he punished those folk. He didn't really do anything to the the Edric Storm squad. And he, in fact, gave some of them important jobs. Roland Storm was one of the guys that helped Davos uh, with his play there. And he is in charge of Dragonstone. So I think that's really what it is. It's, again, a parallel to John's. Stannis has mostly sent his most trusted men to hold positions out in the field or in castles that he's nowhere near so they're not with him soon, soon he won't be surrounded by his friends anymore and it's a little similar to Stannis it's another, one of the many interesting similarities between Stannis and John, which I think is really fun especially this batch of chapters while Stannis and John are maybe dimly uh, or subconsciously aware of how much they have in common what we're going to see in the next chapter is how both John Connington and Tyrion have a lot in common and part of what they have in common is wanting to be like Tywin and hating that they want to be like Tywin. So there's a there's a bit more conflict there because John doesn't hate Stannis or hate the similarities he has with Stannis. But still, you've got powerful people with big egos, lots of authority who have more in common than they might want to admit, in part because of those egos. <laughs> Stefan B. wonders about Stannis and sieges in general. Is Stannis's past and his talk of besieging or seizing Dreadfort? Is that set up for later? I think yes. I think his Siege of Storm's End is foreshadowing or at least setting up it's at least groundwork maybe foreshadowing is the wrong word groundwork for a siege of either Winterfell or Night of the Nightfort where he's holding out against Winter slash the others and that's probably where we get into Shireen burning territory so we'll see but um, yeah absolutely Stannis' stubbornness at holding out Storm's End during Robert's Rebellion is major set up for a siege in the north. I do agree with that. Let's talk jokes. Sir Justin says to Godry the Giant Slayer, he says, we all know what a big giant sword you have, I'm sure. No need for you to wave it in our faces yet again. <laughs> Little dick joke there, of course.
1: Big dick joke.
0: Big dick joke. Yes, big giant one. Now, here we have uh, a great line from Stannis and Jon.
1: Then you mean to go ahead with this attack?
0: Despite the counsel of the great Lord Snow, I... <laughs> I <laughs> love that. Pretty sure we cited that one in our episode, The Wit and Wisdom of Stannis Baratheon. They make an awful squeal if you step on them. My mother used to make a similar sound when I was a boy. She must have had some rat in her, now that I think of it. Brown hair, beady little eyes, liked cheese. Might be she had a tail too. I never looked to see. That, of course, is Dollar Zed. <laughs> Great one. We've got Tyrion Five, Ruins of the Roine, a.k.a. the one where Griff gets grayscale. Of course, the first time through, we didn't know who had grayscale and there was a chance Tyrion had drowned at the end of this chapter. So this is another chapter that reads significantly differently. Lots of under the radar clues that you now can put into perspective as you're reading rather than going, well, what's what's really happening here? When Tyrion points out who Young Griff really is in this chapter, well, that is a huge reveal though, as we've said, it's a false reveal. So it's like, think it's a real reveal. And now second time through, you have this Level of savvy that wasn't there The first time you have this experience You can say to yourself Ah He's a mirror image of a dragon He's the Urax Siren of the Mirror Shield example Dragon Not a true dragon And this is the second of two chapters on the Roin. He's going to pass out Because he's going to be you know Half drowned at the During the last leg of their journey So by the time he wakes up in the next chapter He'll be in Silhoris And we'll have a lot to say about that when we get there But first the creepy and seemingly cursed area called the Sorrows.
1: The shy maid moved through the fog like a blind man groping his way down an unfamiliar hall.
0: Tyrion Five has a tone we are very much used to. As Joe writes, we normally find it with Bran, John, Theon, or Sam. Arya, it's in a sense, when she's at the House of Black and White, especially. The creepy horror show, high tension, magical periphery, Kind of thing going on Like you know something's going on Magical But you can't quite Put your finger on what it is Even the characters Don't know what it is It's it's there But it's not tangible There's a monster That we're waiting to see Lurking behind that fog Tyrion's chapters Are usually political And more rooted in Things that could happen In the real world But now He's fully invested In a world of dreams and wonders Temporarily before getting right back to it later, presumably being around dragons, but we'll get there. A recurring theme is for Tyrion thus, because his chapters have been, and his life have been so rooted in the mundane, not the boring, but the mundane, the natural, not the supernatural. He's often kind of been the Maester Lewin of POVs where he just denigrates or downplays magic. He's the guy that says... Grumpkins and snarks. By. He jokes, he laughs at the Night's Watch's mandate. He's like, blah, blah, blah. He's got, he's got jokes about it. He even questioned whether Danny's dragons were actually real, even though how, like so many people have confirmed it. Uh, he's mocking the fog here. He's mocking Halden. But Isilla starts to set him straight a bit.
1: This is no common fog, Hugh Hill, Isilla insisted. It stinks of sorcery, as you would know if you had a nose to smell it. Many a Voyager has been lost here. Pole boats and pirates and great river galleys, too. They wander forlorn through the mists, searching for a sun they cannot find until madness or hunger claim their lives. There are restless spirits in the air here and tormented souls below the water.
0: That line especially, tormented souls below the water, is really a big part of where we get this notion that this is similar to thematically, symbolically, to the cave of the Three-Eyed Crow, to the wormways with all those dead bodies down there that stored food, with perhaps Danny's dragons stored uh, beneath the pyramid in total darkness, things like that. And it's a bit of instant foreshadowing, Joe would call it. At the end of this one, we get the one of the creepier and most overt magical events in the entire series, right? From Tyrion going from politics and grounded topics to passing the same spot twice on a river, the Bridge of Dream, that is wild, isn't it? Man, what an incredible moment. It's, it's not only surprising and a massive rebuke to Tyrion's downplaying of the supernatural, like he cannot explain that away <laughs> through science. There's multiple times where he tries to explain things to people who have more experience than he does. Like he's read a book, so he thinks he knows everything, even though he's talking to people that have direct firsthand experience. And to be fair, maybe he knows a few things they don't, but he shouldn't act like he knows everything. I mean, he's like, he's like, comes off as a mansplainer a couple of times here. Of course, sometimes he's talking to other men, but he also says it's like you, <laughs> So. It's
1: kind of like like lord-splainer.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely <laughs> comes from his his esque his highborn attitude, his his being yeah. born to lead because he's born to the, such a powerful family. Um, yeah,
1: he's just been educated because of it. Yeah. It, like, it, yeah. He knows if that wherever you're educated, he, you're more likely to overexplain things to people. <laughs> You've had more education. It's not unreasonable.
0: Right. You're you're right. He is more educated about a lot of things. But one thing he's not educated on is how the value of direct experience, I think. And that's what's part of the disconnect. So, yeah, I agree with you. Tyrion also downplays Garen's curse. He says it's only grayscale, there's no magic <laughs> involved. This is a perfect example of him explaining something. He has. He's like Yessil's. Like, look, dude, I've lived on this river all my life. <laughs> like, you're just you've just got here. But he, that said, some of his knowledge of grayscale is useful and likely beyond what she knows. So it's more like a, they both know some things that, if they were to combine their knowledge, well, be getting somewhere. But grayscale does seem like a magical disease, and this fog does seem kind of magical too. Like all of them, even Tyrion start to think, you know what? Actually, they've got a point. This fog is. Pretty unnatural, <laughs> now that you mention it. And the fog itself is a nice metaphor. It clings and dampens and darkens and sticks, like our actions. like our. It's kind of a representation of karma in its simplest form, meaning evil in, evil out, right? Yeah. Uh, a lot of these characters, something that Tyrion has thought about while he's been winding down the Shy Maid, he, almost everybody else on the pole boat, he thinks about how almost everybody here has secrets. How something in their past... It's it's problematic, except for for maybe Isilla and Yandri. So, all of these characters have this, have these skeletons in their closet, have troubling pasts or things they're trying to forget about or, in Griff's case, set old rights wrong. Stuff like that. The dead things in the water. This is like a, a graveyard, a watery graveyard almost, right? The possibility is when imagining the forms that Ruinish magic took amidst this Creepy graveyardish type place, watery graveyard, water cemetery. They're defined a bit here by all this this travel, these tra- traveling. And Garen's curse has a prominent spot in our first Nymeria episode. Another reminder about that. Nina also mentions that not just connections to these graveyards and these places of death and darkness. We also have thematic connections to the others here. The fog is so thick that it's called uncommon sorceress. Even, uh, like I said, even Tyrion agrees. Nina says it's a lot like the unnatural cold that accompanies the presence of the others, right? When the others show up, it's darker, it's cold. There's that age-old question, do they bring the darkness or do they come with the darkness? Who comes first? The others of the darkness. Similar here. Do they bring the fog or is the fog bringing them? The stone men, that is. Now, they're not controlled like whites are, but they are uh, driven off by fire, right? Um, They are thought of as one quote when uh, from this the Shrouded Lord story is, he started as a statue till a gray woman came out of the fog and kissed him with lips as cold as ice. Lips as cold as ice, cold as ice, corpse queen, night king, all these, these vibes are very similar here. So the root of Garen's curse is revenge on conquerors, right? The Valyrians came to conquer the Roin. the Rhoynar were lived there, they were fighting for their homeland, and The magic that lingers is still punishing those conquerors. Well, those conquerors are long gone. It's punishing whoever's there now, just thousands of years later. Not, Actually, not thousands of years, but a long time later, hundreds of years. If we explore that concept with the Others, we find that in parallel as well. If the children created the Others in response to an invasion of Andal's or First Men or what have you, it's had this permanent impact on the world as well. In other words, the others exist as a relic of an ancient war, an ancient struggle between races that aren't fighting anymore. But the fallout, like nuclear fallout from a nuclear war that could infect the territory for generations later, we have this concept here. This area of the ruin is ruined forever by whatever happened exactly. Magic, some kind of magic. They call it Garen's Curse. That's a fine enough name for it. Doesn't really matter where it came from. The fact is it's there. It's permanent, semi-permanent, and it feels very similar to the others being created as a weapon, last-ditch weapon to fight back in a losing war, and it lingers afterwards, continuing to be sort of recurring revenge. Fittingly, as they make their way through the fog, the metaphorical fog around Young Griff is cleared up, sort of, because as we said... It's it's a false reveal. If Young Griff is Rhaegar's son, well, it is an even bigger reveal. But and the fact that his claim is superior to Danny's and John's, even if John was trueborn, this kid would come first. But we know there's a Mummers Dragon in this story, and I am a big believer in all this Blackfire backstory. So this is actually not a setup for a future king, but a setup for a character who's going to have a big impact on Danny and John and others. Again, George does a f- fantastic job with world-building, setting up future events. Yes, we've just talked about grayscale. Garen's curse is going to probably have a big impact on Westeros indirectly. But I'm not talking about that now. I'm talking about the ruins of the Roynar cities. Don't overlook the importance of that. He does such a fantastic job with the settings that it's easy to get lost in just the craft, the construction, and the imagining what it would have been like that we forget to look at it as a foreshadowing device. To, let's, lift, let's have a quote here. It's as dark as it seems, haunted ruins that used to be places of happiness.
1: The palace of love, he said softly.
0: That was the Roynar name,
1: said Halden, half-master. half, master, half maester.
0: <laughs> <laughs> But for a thousand years, this has been the palace of sorrow.
1: The ruin was sad enough, but knowing what it had been made it much sadder. There was laughter here once, Tyrion thought. There were gardens bright with flowers and fountains sparkling golden in the sun. These steps once rang to the sound of lovers' footsteps, and beneath that broken dome, marriages beyond count were sealed with a kiss.
0: Love turned to sorrow. What the Roinar built was unlike anything the world has seen, as far as we know. A prosperous society that seemed fairly, if not extremely, decent. They had learning, they were advanced, they had some cool magic, they didn't have slavery. Apparently, they were pretty strong in equality. Apparently, they were enlightened, Well, those two things kind of go together, don't they? When we talked about marine and like things like 30 years of progress just to have a productive olive tree, how many years did it take for the Rhoynar to get a society in this shape where they had not just decency, but powerful decency? They were a shining example to other cultures around them. But they're gone. They're long gone. That When you think of it in those terms of how much effort, how many people struggled and fought and grew and built and argued and changed and learned, thousands of years of that is what the roynar coalesced into, and now it's all gone. So that is very sad if you think about it that way. Croyane, when it was destroyed, indeed, it wasn't just this incredible palace. Yes, architecturally, it's incredible. It's like s- astonishing to consider what it truly looked like to imagine it. But equally astonishing on a, in a different way is, the, is how a society could have gotten to the place that they valued love so much that people still think of it today. The, they loved so hard <laughs> that it rings throughout the generations. Eons of evolving and growing towards that. It's no wonder it gets to Tyrion. It's getting to me and it's completely fantastical. Greedy slavers came and burned it all. Like, hmm, you can see they took it all, that wealth. So let's break our reverie. How does that apply now? I was telling you this is all build up to some sort of foreshadowing. Well, what is that foreshadowing? The greatest part of the wealth of the Roin is its ability to give and sustain life. The sorrows are just a small section there, not forget. South of it, There's nothing like it in the world. There's a reason the Rhoynar got so powerful and big. It's because it's so fertile. It's abundant. Crops, fish, there's nothing like it. What's along the Rhoyne now doesn't match what the Rhoynar had, but it's big. There's an astonishing level of population along the southern portion of the Rhoyne. There's three cities on the way to Volantis that are bigger than King's Landing. That's enormous. Volantis is bigger than King's Landing. and It's not even counting Volantis. So, woo. That's massive. And think about what that level of destruction would look like. If all these, if these cities are destroyed, or if Volantis is destroyed, or if King's Landing is destroyed, and Tyrion is getting a preview of that by looking at these ruined Roinar cities, they were destroyed by dragon fire. What's likely to destroy Volantis? a slave revolt and fire of Valoris with Daenerys. Eh? Yeah, I call that likely. I call Pentas possible. I call King's Landing pretty likely too for some sort of burning, right? Some kind of burning is in its future. And so these cities of the ruin that Tyrion is, he's like sailing through ancient history, seeing, but it's, he's sailing towards the future. It's really cool, really symbolic, really excellently done. He's heading towards Volantis, while seeing what's coming for Volantis by seeing this karmic past that they've laid down for themselves. So I, I think it's really, really neat. Now, of course, none of these places are gonna stack up to the Palace of Love, not King's Landing, Volantis, nothing. But still, given that it was Valyrian dragonlords who destroyed the Rhoynar cities, and then Daenerys is coming along with dragons and rebellious slaves, yeah, it, it's got some similar feel to it. Another piece of evidence for this is the destroyed Bridge of Dream itself could be a parallel to the Long Bridge of Volantis. It would take an awful lot to destroy the Long Bridge, but it took a lot to destroy the Bridge of Dream. The World of Ice and Fire says very distinctly, the Long Bridge had no rivals, save for the Bridge of Dreams in the roynar Festival city of Croyane. Ah, so the parallels are... Legion here, my friends. As with things like staircases going nowhere. Talk, What an evocative image, actually. I think of Highlander, right? <laughs> Kurgan and Ramirez, Sean Connery's character, fighting, uh, sword fighting atop a, a, st- a staircase going to nowhere. I wonder if uh, George was thinking to that. Highlander certainly came out well before Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> I
1: think of uh, Relativity, the lithograph, the essence. Oh,
0: yeah. That's what I, I think
1: of immediately.
0: Obviously, Escher came out before Song of Rise and Fire, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Nina agrees that this chapter has some hints that Volantis is doomed to die by dragon fire. She writes, when the Kingfisher passes the, sh- the maid, the other ship reports that the elephant and tiger parties have joined forces and will be going to war by the end of the year. Tyrion then thinks that the elephants and tigers must have good reason to make common cause when faced with dragons. This is just after Tyrion thought of Croyane as too rich and too beautiful and determined that it is never wise to tempt the dragons. So yeah, I think quite likely the temptation the reason for the temptation is different obviously in the case of the roynar the valerians saw wealth and power that could be grabbed and conquered but here danny is going to be seeing perhaps the opposite a city so deeply corrupt steeped in slavery that perhaps the only solution is to destroy it so whether or not you agree with that is perhaps beside the point what i'm getting at is what i think will be danny's thought process she's going to see Volantis as a rotting haven. Yeah, just there's just so much suffering there. It's like this is not good. <laughs> Destroying it is evil. Perhaps killing so many people might be evil, but letting it can persist is arguably far worse. And there lies even more conflict. The sorrows is also a huge character moment for Tyrion because love is something he's largely lived without of without his whole life. And when he does have the little bit he's had, comes to mind. And he treated it awfully, and his family treated it worse. So it brings him not just to thinking of Taisha, but finally he starts thinking of Jamie. He's resisted thinking about Jamie for the whole book so far. He's just avoided it. He doesn't want to think about it. It's too painful. Hating Tywin is easy. He's Tywin makes it easy to hate him. Taisha, well, it's so far in the past, it certainly affects him. It's probably the next biggest thing on his mind or the biggest thing on his mind that he's more directly addressing. But Taisha didn't wrong him. He wronged her and his family wronged her. So his sorrow towards Jamie is like a matter of betrayal, right? Jamie betrayed him. He's arguing with himself that he couldn't have known better because he always had trusted his strong, honest older brother, and he had no reason to think that was different this time. It was, and that's why he hates Jamie now. <laughs> So it's so very, very painful. And there's really no resolution here other than time passing, making it a little easier. So just like these cities of the Roinar are gone, I I think so too is any chance of redemption with Taisha. I really don't think he ever is going to see her again. I don't think she's going to appear in the story. And it's kind of weird too, how he thinks about her, just the expectations and associating her with the phrase, where do whores go? He knows she's not actually a whore. She's not a sex worker. He's got no reason to think she went off and became that. Uh, that's part of the lie. So it's just interesting the way this, this phrase repeats in his head is very much reflective of how it's a traumatizing thing because it's it's nonsense in a sense. Like the way he thinks about it isn't real. We got our lesson in valentine Politics last Tyrion chapter just in time for this bit about the kingfisher talking about war. The elephant showing stripes, which again means that the merchant factions are, are looking to even get involved in the fighting, especially because of the slave trade. That's another reason why the, the city might get torched, right? The elephant triarchs. When we hear the history of Valantis during their period of expansion, when the tigers held sway, they they made some progress. Then it all came collapsing back down on them. They they met their match and it collapsed inward. It was a big, huge setback, a big catastrophe for them to try to match the old Empire of Lyria to try to restore the Freehold to take over the the mantle. The lesson was that Volantis extended its power too much, and that was the problem. So that is entirely possible that the elephant triarchs may burn as well as the elephants of the Golden Company, the actual elephants. Yes. So talking about the big cities, um... Really important to note how George also is giving us a lesson in how things change. You go from the Reinar cities to the Valentine cities. And as grand as and powerful and rich as you might be, it all amounts to the same ability to fall. Time is more powerful than anything. Whether we want that, take that message as the destructive powers of dragons, or surely that a fall can just happen to anyone. Well, It's not clear what George is intending with this message, but it is clear enough that he's repeating the message enough times that it's clear it's a signal of some kind. And Joe makes the suggestion that when it's all said and done, what we might be seeing is a world map that looks a lot different because certain things have been taken off of it and maybe other things have begun. And well, doesn't that kind of reflect what George said to me when we got that map signed? Yeah, I thought that exact thing. I was
1: like, I won't interrupt him right now. But yes, we got the world map right behind a Z sign. And George was like, what did he say? Soon it'll all be on fire. Soon yeah, he it'll said all it's burn. soon.
0: Yeah, soon it'll all be burning. And I was like, whoa, spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> we actually video of that. It's pretty cool. So yeah, I wonder. So George definitely uh, dropped an extra hint there in person to what's already quite hinted at in the text. Nina writes that George's TV writing uh, TV writing skills maybe are on display here. This, this chapter, the way this chapter is laid out. Gradual buildup of tension, ominous atmosphere, dramatic plot reveal happening just as an action scene happens. Yeah, the structure is, is tight and familiar once you take a look at it. But there's a reason it's familiar. It's because it's a structure that works really well. We get the impression too that this uh, is a difference... There's a minor difference in how something we see from Young Griff's behavior that speaks to the level of education we spoke of before. Young Griff says, you're a dwarf, scornfully, when they're trying to get him to go below decks. They're telling him, look, kid, it's not that you're not capable. It's that you're too important to risk. But he takes it wrong. His pride is pricked. He's like, you're letting the dwarf stay out here and not me, as if it's a, as if it's a matter of who's capable of fighting and not an issue of risk. If we're comparing these monarchs, these potential monarchs, these people with claims to the throne, I just don't think Danny would ever say a thing like that, you're a dwarf, scornfully like that, to insult someone like that. And John would not either. So, it's another example of like small signs of what this kid's character really is. He's not a bad kid. I mean, he's just peevish. He's a 15-year-old, 16-year-old peevish kid. I I don't I'm getting big on his case here. Still, I think John and Danny are exceptional in that regard. And this is just more like standard teenage kid stuff. And you can't teach this kind of thing, like, or at least no one is teaching him this kind of thing. No one says, look, you can't talk to your, you shouldn't talk to your subjects like that. No one like Septa amor isn't like, look kid, don't do that. You know, maybe, maybe it does happen. Maybe behind the scenes that happens. But the fact that we're seeing it here and at no point else do we see any talk about making him like decent in that sense, like making him treat people well. That isn't necessarily a part of his education that we've seen. We've seen him being educated in a lot of different ways, sword in the sword with the seven with history. But how to rule? Are they actually teaching him that? You know, matters of kingship. I'm not sure they are. Now it's really hard to know exactly what Illyrio and Varus have been up to the whole time because they keep changing their plans. Not because they're they change their mind, but because they're adjusting to unforeseen events. And that links to How we've seen the whole series right from the beginning, we've thought about Danny returning, Danny's story, Danny's throne. She's the singular since Viserys died. Now, all of a sudden, we have a second Targaryen. Probably not, but <laughs> it's almost like this is a build up to the real secret Targaryen of John, which is why I say very clearly one of these is not like the others, one is meant to be set up for the other two. There's more, uh. Grayscale setup here that I neglected to mention, along with a mention of some meta here that Nina caught that some of you all caught as well. There's an homage here. First off, Young Griff mentions fish in the river. Estelle is like, don't eat fish around the sorrows. That is reflected elsewhere in the world. The river Ash around Ashai, which is, there's quote, blind and twisted, so deformed and hideous to look upon that only fools and shadow binders will eat of their flesh. That's the seafood from the Ash River. The Brimstone River near the Hellholt, also supposedly uh, there's a tale of of men getting sick from eating fish from that river when they were invading. Uh, This was during Aegon's conquest when Aegon's army was in Dorne and it was the Tyrell army had some issues there. So this phenomena does seem to exist around uh, planetos, Taros, whatever you want to call it. And here's the homage. Is the story of multiple shrouded lords a nod to the Princess Bride? Meaning there's not just one shrouded lord who's lived hundreds of years, but someone else takes the mantle up afterwards. That is a very familiar concept if you think of the idea of the Dread Pirate Roberts, who in the the movie Princess Bride, sorry, spoilers, (laughs) there Wesley is something like the, well, I don't know how many Dread Pirate Roberts, but many Dread Pirate Roberts have existed before him, and at the end of the movie, he passes the mantle on to someone else. Especially, this is a wonderful parallel, especially given that the Shrouded Lord seems to be a pirate. (laughs) So, really important. Two other things seal this evidence. One is that Princess Bride is listed as George's, or listed on George's top 10 list of fantasy films. So he has explicitly told the world he loves the Princess Bride, and why not? It's a great movie. And Halden, when they pass the Bridge of Dreams for the second time, what does he say? What one word does he utter? Inconceivable. Straight from the Princess Bride. Right on. But it's deeper than that, too. Beyond this homage, the the phenomena of characters seemingly being said to live for hundreds or thousands of years, where the reality is probably taking up the mantle, taking up the identity anew, while it being kind of a mystery who the real person behind the mask is, that could explain historical figures like the Grey King or the Bloodstone Emperor, things like that, where... They're supposedly alive for hundreds of years. That said, living for hundreds of years is also supported within the possibilities of the text. The destruction of the Palace of Love and Croyane has some vibes to the Tower of Joy, which I think is a wonderful catch because so much of this scene involves Rhaegar and Rhaegar's child and Rhaegar's children and, and the heirs of Rhaegar the Tower of Joy is destroyed, turning it into graves for his friends and the fallen Kingsguard and this grave site for the people of the Rhoyne who were, quote, once the Lords of Fire and all that, uh, as well as the, meeting the Targaryens who, were, who, were, who died there. So that's really neat. I also think this is meant to sound a bit like Catelyn. Uh, it doesn't go that direction for Tyrion, but these being stone men, her being stone heart, is a little part of it, but this quote here sends me a lot farther down this rabbit hole. It was only his revenant who remained, the small vengeful ghost who throttled Shay and put a crossbow bolt through the great Lord Tywin's bowels. No man would mourn the thing that he'd become. I'll haunt the seven kingdoms, he thought, sinking deeper. I've referred to Stoneheart as a revenant a lot of times. It's a pretty apt description, which is an undead being that returns to seek revenge on killers for some sort of unjust killing. That's one version of Revenant, but certainly the one that I think of when I think of Stoneheart. And of course, Tyrion's throat isn't cut. He's not pulled out of the water by a wolf several days later, but he is pulled out by a griffin in wolf's clothing right away. And of course, it's that griffin who starts turning to stone, not the lion, so far anyway, even though the stone man directly touched his face and, and maybe his arm. And that's supposed to be the, the most likely way to get infected. So there's some people out there that think this is, uh, that Tyrion will come down with grayscale eventually, that it's just starting slow. So it's very interesting. Uh, there's some details here. Now, grayscale is going to be argued emphatically by Val soon that it's a big problem and she's going to be referring to Shireen when she says it. So we've got these very distant points from each other. we got the wall where grayscale is becoming a topic and we've got way over here in the ruin where it's becoming a topic but of course, by the end of the book, Griff is going to be in Westeros. So we've got Grayscale landing in the Stormlands at Griffin's Roost, while it's also perhaps becoming a thing up in the north uh, to lesser... We have less understanding of what's going on in the north there and what, what's Shireen and Val's deal and all that. But still, it's being set up to be a significant, if not more so. So fairly clear that something's happening there. And it's a big, tricky part of the Young Griff plot. Like, I can kind of think through what's going to happen with young Griff and at least kind of hit the milestones like, okay, probably takes King's Landing, probably doesn't hold it for super long, certainly isn't going to be king by the end of the series, dies or doesn't die, I don't know. Maybe he finds out his real heritage and accepts that he's not Rhaegar's son. That could open up all sorts of things. If not, he's probably going to die. How does Grayscale fit into any of that? I really don't know, but it's super interesting and it's one of the things that I think is super cool because. There's a lot we've sort of figured out. We're going to be wrong about some of the things we think we figured out. Let's be honest, right? There's going to be some things where we're like, holy crap, we were way wrong about that. That's going to happen. There's so many topics. We're bound to be wrong about some of them. But this one is one that I have just not seen a lot of predictions that about what's going to happen with Grayscale. People, We still know. The show didn't help. I mean, the show just gave one guy Grayscale in a weird way to cure it. So that doesn't tell us anything. <laughs> that same guy probably isn't even going to get Grayscale in the show or in the book. So... We really learned basically nothing there. If we take the notion of the Roinar cities being foreshadowing for future destruction, we must mix in this other character, the Tyrion's on the boat, John Connington. The worry about dragon fire destroying cities is balanced by the idea that wildfire could be involved and that someone besides Danny could have a hand in it. And John Connington is top candidate for that. And as we consider that he's already pretty ruthless and determined and not willing to make the mistakes of Stony Sept, he thinks he should have burned down that town, right? In his mind, his mistake was not being more ruthless, not being more like Tywin. What will Grayscale do to his thought processes, to his sense of urgency, his sense of humanity and such? He, could, he might lose some of his clarity, his focus, his ability to think straight. He might lose some of his compassion and he didn't have too much of that to begin with. This line from John himself about stone men and the dangers of stone men read dramatically different to me this time through. It may have a broader application to the plot than what John Connington is referring to in the context he says it, which is this line, near the end, they all go mad, but that is when they are the most dangerous. That could apply to him going mad from grayscale, becoming ultra dangerous, not just because he's capable of infecting people, but because he's in a position of authority with men following his lead, taking orders from him, who knows what he might order. That's where this anguish of burning King's Landing might come from. Not a rational John Connington, but a grayscale addled John Connington. And again, I want to repeat this amazing connection, this sort of triangle, how Tyrion and Griff have a lot in common. We talked about a lot of it already. One of the major like Plot arc things they have in common is that they're kind of on a revenge path. And they're on a revenge path for similar reasons. They're both traumatized by Tywin and they both want to be like Tywin while not wanting to be like Tywin, right? Tyrion almost calls John Connington father this chapter. That's how deep it runs. So (laughs) it's really, really quite strong. George is amazing at these sort of things. Through the Moon Door says History of Westeros. Do you think the magic the Roynar used against the Valyrians is lost to history, or there, or are there still people who can practice it? Ah, very good question. I, I, oh, Shea has answered some of it. They refer to it being brought to Dorne, but that could be. Yeah, actually, they did, there is some evidence that some of it is in Dorne, although it couldn't be terribly overt, or you know, people would be constantly impressed and wonder uh, among uh, wondering about it. Uh, but there's probably some of it. I think maybe the Roin itself may have helped encourage magic, like, you know, hinge of the world type situation. Maybe there's some magic built into it. But there may be colonies elsewhere. There's colonies of Rhoynar on the Stepstones. There's colonies of Rhoynar maybe even still in Sothorios. That's not stated, but I, it's just a theory of mine. And who knows where else? Also, I think it's entirely possible that there's a the magic of the Rhoynar was contained within some of the slaves of Valyria because some of the Valyrian slaves were captured, right? They were, were, a lot of them were Roinish. They have Roinish roots. And if it's a bloodline thing, if there's some of the magic in their blood, like certain people are born with the abilities like green seers, green dreamers, what have you. Maybe that happened to some of the slaves uh, of Roinish descent amongst the, in Valyria. And one of my pet theories is that the first faceless man had Roinar blood. And that was like a, maybe a little bit of uh, I keep using the word karma, which <laughs> I think I'm getting looser with how I use it each time. But basically, it's this coming back to bite them in the butt. They enslaved these Roinar, and then eventually the Roinar broke free and became, you know, a little seed of that energy formed the Faceless Men and, and went from there. But of course, this isn't very well supported. It's just a kind of bit of headcanon or uh, something that's possible. Amy Blackfire says, this Tyrion chapter is my fave. What are your favorite theories for who the Shrouded Lord is? Uh, Ooh, I think he probably just is a pirate at this point. It could be Jerry. I do kind of like that idea, but I'm more of the more of the impression that Jerryn's dead. but maybe he was the shrouded Lord. It's kind of weird to think of a Lannister turning pirate like that. Like he could go home and have more wealth than <laughs> than this way. But I don't know. I, I don't really have another theory for that. Um, but I love the question. I like having this question on record for like what's keep an eye out for who this might be? And yes, like so many of us, We really, really want to read that deleted, shrouded Lord chapter, because that might tell us. (laughs) One day we might actually find out. It won't be in A Song of Ice and Fire proper, but, you know, if we get the uh, deleted scenes one day, then maybe we will. We really wonder, what was that thing flying overhead, some sort of leathery wings thing? In the show, it was Drogon, (laughs) but (laughs) it really don't, some people wonder if it's Drogon here too, but. I'm gonna give a big no on that one. It's really far away from the Dithraki Sea. Well, from the portion of the Dithraki Sea that Danny's on anyway. It's not actually that far from like the start of the Dothraki Sea, but the Dothraki Sea is ginormous.
1: My guess though has always just been it's a wyvern.
0: I saw people make that guess. I like that guess a lot. It definitely could be. Yeah. Yeah,
1: they have leathery wings.
0: Yeah, and they don't breathe fire. They're smaller than dragons. So it would it would it would capture that feel really well of of you know, the remnants of what destroyed this place, you know, especially if Wyverns really are uh, cousins to dragon through blood magic uh, or natural means. Small note here, the fact that the ship that they pass is called the Kingfisher, and Kingfishers are notable for having blue heads, um, bright blue heads, and this is you know, young Griff and Griff both have blue hair. (laughs) And they're kind of fishing for a king here. Like, which one of these guys is a king here? (laughs) And, of course, Tyrion's death at the end, death in quotes, obviously, he doesn't really die, recalls the Battle of the Blackwater. Obviously, going into the water, it's sort of like payback, more karma, maybe we could call it. He, He gets to sink and half drown like Davos did. In fact, Davos... Was thrown into the black water because of Tyrion's wildfire. So it really is full circle here, and drowning. So we get this compli- this full circle situation for Davos and Tyrion that I think is pretty neat. But also we have uh, this great comment from Tree Girl. She writes that I've been trying to figure out a scientific explanation for the Bridge of Dream, but I just keep going around in circles. <laughs> Good one. And yeah, so it's fitting that Tyrion ends with a. Not drowning in a fake-out death Saved by a man whose entire life is a fake-out death John Connington's is supposed to be dead, but isn't Just as the next chapter's POV had his own fake-out death Because of these wildfire tactics by Tyrion So we go from a blue-haired boy To a green-haired girl And another fake-out death Because at the end of this next chapter Wyman's going to call for Davos' head And of course, it's a trick Davos 3, the one with Frey Lies, a.k.a. the gang meets the coolest green-haired girl in Westeros. Though I've said it before, this one is a particularly different experience. It's really fun to know the tables are going to turn. You're What I mean emotionally, emotionally different experience. It's the first time it's painful. You're like, oh, man, Wyman Manderly, he's just all these ridiculous claims. He's, he's accepting these claims about Robb Stark killing Willis Manderly and or Wendell Manderley, rather, and all their unearned arrogance and, oh, these wretched arguments. It's like, oh my God, it's so painful and anxious. And then, but this time it's like, <laughs> it's so, so reversed. It's the genius of this chapter that you're, even though it's the cackling along as part of the fun, there's still so much more. It's not just about that. So a lot of times when you reread a chapter that's just built around a surprise it's not that great the second time because you already know the surprise, but that just really doesn't happen that often in A Song of Ice and Fire because there's just something else instead or multiple something else's to invest your emotions and thoughts in instead that are new, right? That's something that you, they're new to you or something that you didn't notice last time or something you put in greater context or something that you've rethought or some new theory you're considering or multiples. It's a really genius chapter. The first time you get, you, you get it instead of all these tasty surprises But instead of the surprises resolving, making it less interesting, you get to appreciate the setup because it's so well set up and it's so very rich. On reread, when Jared Frey smirks, when we hear that brave young Willa is going to marry little Walder and Winifred Manderly is going to marry this Rhaegar Frey guy, who's also smirking, by the way, and, and calls Rob a vile dog who died like one, like, Them's fighting words, man. <laughs> so, and, and not to mention that we already got to set up for Cersei thinking that she's gotten Davos's head. It's just, yeah, this, this chapter is like... <laughs> the phrase, think they're lions and Davos is the rat. But they're the ones being toyed with. They're the ones to be exterminated at will. They're the ones dealing with who they think is a weak overweight, passive coward when he's actually far more clever, capable, and determined than, they, than, he, than he seems. The phrase are the rats in this situation. They just don't know it. And to deal with rats, you got to smoke them out. You got to get them out into the open and then trap them. And man, this Wyman Manjali does it so well. Here's the first line.
1: His lordship will hear you now, smuggler.
0: (laughs) Funny, too, that they're pretending as part of the act, they're denigrating him as a smuggler. But in reality, they very much need his smuggling skills. It's actually going to be a feather in his cap. They're going to be like, smuggler. Smuggler. No, smuggler. We need a smuggler to go to Skagos and rescue the heir to our throne. This man, Durley, named Marlin. Is haughty to Davos and is the one given the order to chop off his head and hands. So obviously he's in on it because they're like, wait, don't don't cut his head and hands off. Actually, I was just lying. So he's he knew about it all ahead. So he's in it like almost all the comments made by people during this uh, scene. Everyone except Willa is in on it, and the fact that she's not in on it is just so much cooler because that means that she's just like legitimately spoke from the heart, which is so awesome. But reminder: Nina points out something interesting here. That's a good reminder. She's 15. She's Rob's age. I think a lot of times she comes off as a little younger than that, but she's 15. That's, that's, like I said, Rob's age. She really shines through here as she's clearly meant to, and she makes the whole thing work better by expressing her truest wishes in a way that allows Wyman to reject them. It keeps the surprise banked, and it shows the phrase where, well, it. Keeps the subterfuge well alive and good. Uh, by raising an issue and rejecting it, you get to you have the uh, ability, uh, opportunity to express where you stand on it. I was like, oh no, Rob Stark, yeah, well said. Well said, vile dog. Yeah, that's right. Good. You 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 said it right. Yeah. Uh Nina writes that we get a real through the surroundings of this chapter, through the description to the merman's court and men like Marlon Manderley, who has silver armor with Mother of Pearl and Jade and Jet on his helm. This guy's a cousin. This is a Manderley cousin, and his armor is bling. I mean, that is rich, rich armor. This shows, this is a a display of power. This whole chapter is a lot of the trappings of power displayed. It's a flip to John in that sense. Wyman is displaying, he has his whole family there. He has a big court. The wealth is on display. He talks about like his army, talks about these things he still has. Some of it's subtle, some of it's out in the open. It's very well arranged and it's so very clever. The characters' names here are pretty notable too. Rhaegar Frey, dressed in all silver, like a silver prince. (laughs) And we have a character named Willa who is the same name as John's milk mother, uh, whom Ned pretends is John's real mother. And, Wyman calls Rhaegar a smirking worm in Davos (laughs) 4. So worm, you know. Anyway. If there were any good place for Davos to plead Stannis' case to Lord Manderly, the Merman Court is a pretty good spot because it's decorated in imagery of the ocean and the sea. And that's maybe meant to be thematically suggested that this is actually a friendly place for a sailor like Davos despite the words being thrown around. The court is full of people. This is part of the power display. The more people you have hanging around your court, the more powerful you seem to be. Because people who are just hanging around at your court, you're paying for their food and their upkeep and things like that. So they're not just chilling at your house. There's some implication of expense as well. And again, this image that Wyman is projecting is as much to the phrase in Bolton's as it is to Davos. He's trying to show off his power, showing he's showing what they've got while also uh, maintaining the subterfuge about who they're really backing. It's a thorough group. You've got his not just his family, but you've got the maester, you've got septons, holy sisters, uh, which is a reminder of the presence of the faith and and where the manderleys and how the manderleys worship rather since they're not followers of the old gods. And we get even more set up to show um, maybe things aren't the way they uh, seem.
1: Gods be good, thought Davos, when he saw Lord Wyman's face. This man looks half
0: a corpse. Nina writes, this is the first time we've seen Wyman since the Harvest Feast in Winterfell in a Clash of Kings. And he certainly looks worse. Back then, he was jovial, booming voice, had the energy to travel all the way from White Harbor and to dance. Remember, he danced at Winterfell, right? And he brand notices that. And here he's like melting into his chair. He described as looking like a corpse. It certainly doesn't actually line up with what we learned from Godric Porrell. Davos is told that he was stuffing clams and cakes into his mouth again shortly after vowing to get revenge for the murder of his son. So either Godric is exaggerating or some combination of Wyman is uh, putting on airs here to look less healthy to show weakness because it's part of his plan to play nice until the right opportunity comes. It's also perhaps foreshadowing because Wyman Mandrisley seems, his determination seems to be on a path to his own death. He seems to be willing to give up his life as part of winning this war in the North, getting rid of the Boltons, whatever his full slate of goals are. I don't think he plans on getting back to White Harbor after uh, going to Winterfell. Now, this maester, we have an oblique reference to his this maester is. Remember, this maester is a Lannister, and, and Nina points out the description of him as a rosy-cheeked man with thick lips and a head of golden curls, which really screams Lannister, and indeed that he is uh, a Lannister of Lannisport. Uh, the string of titles that is listed out by the maester is part of this power display, part of this authority, part of showing off how strong they are. But it's also a lot of rabbit holes and fun stuff in terms of where these titles originate from. We got mentions like, well, Knight of the Green, Order of the Green Hand. We got Lord Marshal of the Mander. We've got Defender of the Dispossessed. We've got all these cool titles, several of which we delve into in our Manderly series. But Defender of the Dispossessed is really appropriate here Historically, it was they ran from the Reach because they were pushed aside in some some kind of civil struggle. They had to flee, and they were accepted in the north by the Starks. So they were dispossessed of their of their own lands, and people presumably came with them. Uh, they they presumably brought some of their subjects, and it was probably a difficult task to move from the Reach to the north and all that. And well, the Manderleys are. Defending the dispossessed here as well. They're the ones that are working to restore the Starks. They're the ones secretly planning to ally with Stannis. Stannis's situation's not great. He's almost dispossessed of his own castle. He still technically has it, but he doesn't expect to continue to hold it. So we've got all these people dispossessed of their seats, of their quote-unquote rightful lands, and it looks like Wyman Manderly is taking all of their sides, just... He has to do it a certain way so he doesn't get caught first. Here are some interesting points, too, that might have slipped under your radar. Here's another quote. Some of the threats Davos mentions are scoffed at here.
1: Next to the high seat, Sir Marlon Manderley gave a snort of disdain. It has been centuries since White Harbor has seen any wild things, and the Ironmen have never troubled this coast. Does Lord Stannis propose to defend us from snarks and dragons too?
0: Okay, during the reread, as you all have seen, if you may recall, we've seen reasons to suspect all of these will actually happen, might actually happen. The Free Folk probably won't be enemies to White Harbor, but it says since White Harbor has seen any wildlings, they'll almost certainly see some (laughs) wildlings considering they've all, like so many of them have gone south of the Wall now. Nina writes also that Two, uh, it hasn't been centuries. It's only been, what? No, it has been centuries. Two, two Two and a half centuries since uh, that wildling woman dueled Jonquil Dark in an exhibition at White Harbor. So that would probably be the last time that we know of, anyway. Good little take from Fire and Blood there. But as far as these other points, okay, snarks, fair point. We're probably not going to see any snarks. <laughs> maybe some starks. Maybe some starks. But maybe what snarks represent, right? Snarks are just this, this thing, this catch-all boogeyman thing uh, and the things that are considered boogeyman like the others they really are real old man's stories come to life so do will we see the others at white harbor so, i think so so basically so. What, what
1: do you get when you turn a stark into another a snark
0: <laughs> well put good said what about the iron man well we already theorized how euron quite possibly could wrap around and rule the seas all around Westeros, not just on the West Coast, which is your traditional Ironborn territory. We mentioned the connection, the thematic connections to the Quiet Isle and Euron's interest in King's Landing, potential reasons to think he might come around that side. We do see him in King's Landing in the show. That's not a great clue, but it's a little something. So, yeah, I think this is entirely possible that Ironborn ships could indeed trouble White Harbor and but brings up another question. We know what Manderly's making these ships, right? He's he's got war galleys hidden. That's we've been really wondering what that's gonna be all about. We're excited that he's been doing that. But as far as where and what they're gonna be deployed against, I haven't really seen a lot of theories there. I don't really have any of my own. What are these White Harbor navies gonna do? Who is their enemy? It's not the Boltons. The Boltons don't have ships, so like I don't think that's a problem. Are they gonna be used to bring people south? Are they gonna be used to bring food in because White Harbor's starving. I mean, those are possibilities, but it could it could be more than one thing. But another possibility is that the White Harbor ships could fight the Ironborn. That would seem odd in from the context of early in the series, but we've had years pass, leaders rise. Well, we're in uncertain, changing times, times of exceptions. It might happen. When the Red Wedding comes up, the real, the biggest of the Frey Lies come, leading us to later Frey Pines. We're no stranger to fray Lies in general. In fact, we are very, very familiar with them. Even big, hard-to-believe ones like this. Nina points out, in Catelyn 4, A Storm of Swords, the phrase simply can't help themselves in going too far with a cover story. Lothar reports the version of the Sack of Winterfell. He says, Theon and the Ironborn were responsible that's a reasonable lie that Theon and the Ironborn were responsible for sacking Winterfell. It's certainly what the Boltons claim, and that's it is fairly believable. But he then goes and frames Ramsey Snow as a hero, fr- rescuing survivors. Lothar doesn't know better. Uh, Lothar's not an idiot, right? We know he's actually quite clever, but Lothar doesn't know who Ramsey Bolton is. He doesn't know that Ramsey's reputation is so awful that beyond the pale, he's so bad. That this is so un- this is just unbelievable. They're like, you can't paint that guy as a hero. Like we know better. And then Rhaegar Frey tries to argue, like, oh, they say who is they? Who- who's they saying that about Ramsay? We know how they talk. Like he's trying to play it off like it's just rumor. <laughs> it's like, yet he's saying that to a group of people, many of whom have firsthand experience with Ramsay's doings. Like Lady Hornwood is mentioned. By Willa, don't forget Lady Hornwood is Lady Vanderly at birth, so that is a very personal thing to them. She bit her fingers off. She was starved to death, and this Rhaegar phrase, like, it's just a rumor. The the things about Ramsay are just rumors. Like, oh man, no wonder Davos thinks wanted to Davos wanted to peel his lips off with a knife. <laughs> Davos, like Davos is like you got to do a lot to make Davos that feel that violent. And it's maybe a little bit of foreshadowing too. A little humorous foreshadowing. Peeling is normally the kind of thing you do to food, right? <laughs> so this, and, and Rhaegar Frey is soon going to be food. Works nicely. And Davos, of course, is we love his just calling the phrase directly out because no one else is doing it. And you're like, someone's got to do it. There's a lot of social application to this. It's important in the world to speak up a little. You don't have to yell, you don't have to scream, you don't have to curse but we can't leave it to just selected few to raise their voices about wrong things because that puts too much burden on that individual to carry the weight. So Davos is carrying the weight here and Willa Manderly is the only one that helps him and (laughs) that's part of why she's so awesome because he's he's alone and she stands up with him on principle he says, for one thing, he says Jared of House Frey, I name you liar there's no mincing, (laughs) just straight up You're a liar. There's no, I'm not going to even bother saying what parts of that filthy story are lies because it's just so ridiculous. I'm just going to call you a liar. (laughs) And then we have this line in response. Davos keeps churning out the good ones.
1: Take his head, rather, suggested Ser Jared, or let him meet me on the field of honor. What would a fray know of honor, Davos threw back.
0: (laughs) Shades of Lord Piper at Riverrun, remember? I say what I mean like an honest man, but what would a fray know about the ways of honest men? You love to see it, right? (laughs) Now, Davos knows he's weak on this point, though. He knows he can't really push back against an argument, even though his lie is bold-faced. He doesn't actually have evidence to contradict them. He just has to hope that people agree with him that this lie is enormous, that it's just unbelievable. Here's another thought he has that when he's trying to decide how to present his case, what does he need to say to win the day here? How can he argue his way out of this?
1: War and woe and the screams of burning men, Davos might have said. The chance to do your duty, he replied instead. That was the answer Stannis would have given Wyman Manderly. The hand should speak with the king's voice.
0: When you're reading that for the first time, you really hope it works. It doesn't, but it does. It just doesn't seem to work at the time. There's no, the, the reaction is overt, but what's coming in Davos 4 is set up by this answer from Davos. Davos doesn't realize how much he's actually being interviewed here. Stanis, Wyman does want to take his side. This is a, the things Davos is saying Even though he feels like they're hopeless, they're totally winning Wyman over. He's like, look at how honorable this guy is in the face of all this. I definitely want to back this man. I just can't do it openly yet. He has to wait for his son to be unhostaged. He has to wait to get the upper hand on the phrase. He's playing it cautious. He's playing it careful. He's doing it right. And it's partly because Davos says the right things here, even though he thinks it's hopeless. It's it's really quite beautiful. Willa jumps into our hearts says Joe, and I think that's a great way to put it. He not only, she not only reminds us that Eddard and Catelyn Stark fell because of these same phrase, but by declaring she'll never marry a Frey. Just yells that out like, no, I'll never marry that. She defies her sister. She defies her grandfather. She insists the phrase killed the king, which is unforgivable. It's such a huge crime. Stands up in front of people telling her to be quiet. Her bravery, she shames them all. This bean shames us all. This little girl, this 15-year-old green-haired girl is braver than everyone in the room, even perhaps including Davos, telling them what they should do accurately, reminding them of vows and promises, things that very matter a lot in this culture. And it's it's just great. (laughs) She reminds us a little bit of Aria by just having an unflappable sense of what's right and not allowing anything to move her off that position. Still, uh, Wyman allows a rebuttal. He allows the phrase to talk, which is so interesting. He allows Davos to make his points. You really, that's a a clue here. The fact that he's letting all these things be said, letting them be aired out. If he really didn't want Davos to talk, if he really wasn't going to listen to Davos, he wouldn't let him talk at all. Just off with his head right away, right? But he wanted to let Davos say these things. He wanted these grievances to be aired. In front of, he wanted to shout down the phrase, but he couldn't do it himself. So he, <laughs> he allowed Davos. to like, "Yeah, you keep you keep talking. Uh, you're an envoy well, for now. We'll give you the, the courtesy of allowing you to speak for now." You know, he throws in the throws in the point where it's yes, on principle, I will let you speak, but I don't like you. That's just to remind so the phrase, are, "Are don't get suspicious." So when Rhaegar Frey takes this, gets his chance to speak again. He, he reveals some some of these awful things. And this is what Willa actually says.
1: He won't ever be my lord. He made Lady Hornwood marry him, then shut her in a dungeon and made her eat her fingers. She just
0: doesn't get why all these good people are behaving like this. Like, look, this is crimes are blatantly obvious. Like I said, very similar to Arya because Arya is the one who's saying, look, Micah didn't do anything. What the hell are you guys doing? This is wrong. This is evil. I don't understand. Like, everyone taught me to be good, and then none of you are being good. None of you are being honest here. It's just mind-blowing to her that it was very eye-opening that uh, the world didn't work the way people taught her it did. And that's what's happening for Willa here, too. She's just baffled and exasperated at the open betrayals that are being discussed here and just casually dropped. And this is what starts to have an effect on the crowd. As much as some of the crowd is probably not in it, in on it, the family is, some of it, uh, the Manderleys or some of them are in on it, but most of the people just hanging around in court are not. What, but they kind of can sense, they can read the room a bit. But when the finger eating and Lady Hornwood stuff is mentioned that they can't keep quiet, there's grumbling in the room. Some of them are agreeing with Willa, they're sympathizing with Davos. One guy stands up and says, Yeah, you know, we can deal with Roos. Roos Bolton, like, we've seen worse than him. But this Ramsey, he's another sort of bad. He's a different category. We can't, it's a whole nother thing with him. And that's, that finds agreement too. That's like, yeah, as bad as Roos is, it's nothing like Ramsey. We can deal with Roos, but Ramsey, there's just no dealing with that. You just got to kill it. You know, you got to put it down. They can't say that, but it's effectively what they're thinking. Meanwhile, Rhaegar Frey calls him brave Ramsey Bolton. So. And Rhaegar, I guess this is talk about a guy who can't read the room, though. He thinks he's reading the room. He thinks that Wyman wants to hear this sort of thing. He thinks he's saying the right words. But, ooh, this line.
1: The young wolf, he was a vile dog and died like one. The merman's court had grown still. Davos could feel the chill in the air. Lord Wyman was looking down at Rhaegar as if he were a roach in need of a hard heel.
0: It's probably the most overt spot where Wyman gives away, the almost gives away the game because those words were just so over the top that Wyman's like, oh God, I really want to kill this guy. He may have already been thinking, I'm going to eat you. (laughs) Like literally, I will eat you. (laughs) Sure enough, he does. But he maintains his composure somehow and, and allows what must be a very painful nod of agreement. Says, yeah, well said. Yeah, good job. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and I wonder too, a little, you know, thinking planning-wise that the Freys are up here trying to make, you know, they're maybe trying to feel things out. We know that Simon, the third Frey, who isn't necessarily, who doesn't speak up here, He's the spymaster guy. He's all around, like, bribing Wyman's people. And that's why Wyman is super cautious. He's like, I can't have a whiff of anything getting out that we might be disloyal. They are looking everywhere to find a sense of our disloyalty. They are checking everything. They are being very thorough to make sure we're really on their side because, frankly, we did some stuff to them and <laughs> would make sure they're not trying to get revenge on us. Well, that's what's happening here. I think the phrase are being deliberately over the top to see if they can provoke a reaction. But Wyman Manderly is just not provoked. He's like, yep, y'all are right. Robb Stark, as a dog, sure. Mm, whatever you say. Mm. You know, meanwhile, he's probably, his butt cheeks are probably clenched. <laughs> Rhaegar Frey is in the first Frey to have a Targaryen namesake. We got a whole like Targaryen branch of the phrase here. There's a, his elder brother was a, named Aegon Bloodborn, who's an outlaw. We don't know anything about him, but he's an outlaw, which is interesting. Two of his first full cousins were Magel and Aegon. That's Jingle Bell Aegon. So two Aegons, and Magel, of course, is a Targaryen name as well. Then we have Rhaegar's oldest son is Robert, <laughs> and then Raymond Frey has sons named Robert, Tywin, and Jamie and a daughter named Cersei. And Cleos's son is Tywin, but Cleos is actually part Lannister, so that's not as much of a stretch. What's interesting is Willa would have made a fantastic hostage for the Boltons from their perspective, strategically. Like, if they take her, you know the Manderlees will behave because she's such a treasure. But Wyman was not going to do anything that foolish and bring a hostage with him to White Harbor, or to Winterfell. So when he shows up at Winterfell, another clue that he doesn't expect to return home is that everyone who comes with him is old. It's like the veritable. it's like the old story of when a northern man is ready to die in winter he announces he's going to go out hunting even though there's no chance he, hun- he he succeeds in his hunting it's it's a it's a way to say i'm going to go die now and not have the burden of my stomach on this family when we have no food the similar concept here wyman re- realizes his life is going to be over soon he's going to sacrifice himself for his family for his city for his king and some of his oldest retainers are going to go down with him because, well, he's their lord; they've served him all their lives. They're going to die with him. And when we get to those chapters, we'll see. That's <laughs> pretty much all gray-bearded men are with wine and Even Ruth and Rams are going to be like, they didn't bring any hostages. And I'm like, yep, that's a problem. <laughs> so, Nina writes also on the topic of why it's important to have so many people hear these lines. It seems strange on the surface to have an audience whose purpose is to tell Davos that White Harbor is backing the Baratheon and Lannisters. But why do you actually need a whole bunch of people for that unless you want the news to get out, unless you really want everyone to know that? That's the point. He wants to be as loud as possible with his fake allegiances so that nothing but rumor of good comes out from the city. No, it's like Doran Martell. He's like, up in King's Landing, they're not going to hear anything but good things about us. They're not going to have any reason to suspect what we're really up to. We will give them no reason to be suspicious. We will play as nice as possible, lull them into a false sense of security, and then eat them. Notice that when Jared Frey bears steel against Davos, Wyman for one one time stands up a little bit to the Freys and says, nope, you got to put your steel up. No bloodshed in the Merman's court. A little parallel to Uh, in A Feast for Crows with the fake drawing of the sword by Lynn Corbray in order to provoke a reaction which allows Littlefinger to co-opt the rest of the meeting by his own needs or by his own goals. Now, of course, this is a bit of a reversal in that Jared Frey is not in on it, but it is uh, similar in that both of those parlays, both of those negotiations were done under false pretenses. Both of these scenes. Nice parallel there. Uh, A couple of pieces of evidence that Nina gathered here to lay out what the clues are for this being a charade. Like, ways for you to catch that this was a charade in advance uh, in the chapter. For example, the fact that she could have, or he could have just thrown Davos in the dungeon right away and never let him speak. Never let him talk. Why even give him the opportunity to convince people, right? Why give him the chance? Well, this is why. (laughs) He doesn't actually, he does actually want those things voiced out loud in his court so that people hear them and know what's up, at least will know what's up later. It's a great setup. And well, also another one is, we know that before, during the war, Tywin offered the return of Willis in exchange for flipping during the war, but Wyman said no. In other words, a hostage did not change his loyalty the first time, but this time he's acting like it will. Huh? So that's a pretty big clue because his—it's a—it's an attitude he had the first time is different this time. So it's an evidence that he's playing along rather than. Being willing to take that risk Because he was willing to take that risk He was like, you want to threaten my son To change my allegiance? Not happening You know, if you're going to chop his head off So be it Final clue that this is all feigned Is that He says, I want His head and hands brought to me Before I sup I shall not be able to eat a bite Until I see this smuggler's head upon a spike With an onion shoved between his lying teeth Again, remember what we brought up last time uh, Or earlier rather That Yeah, earlier, not last time. That Godric told Davos this rumor that Wyman was still, that made this declaration that he wouldn't eat and then started stuffing his face. (laughs) Anyway, like he broke his promise immediately. Uh, If he was not very serious about abstaining from all that food, then he's probably not being truthful about it this time either. And Stefan B caught a, a clue. He says that, Wyman Mandley at one near the end is like, okay, blah blah blah, say this, and then can we put an end to this mummers farce? <laughs> Taken in the different context, yes, he's ready to end the literal mummers farce. They're all pretending to be something they're not. <laughs> they're all they're all being mummers except for the phrase there, and Davos and Willa <laughs> and Leona Wolfield, the wife of of Willis, and another co- sort of lawyer speak here, Rolling Knight points out the line, I will not do it. Not for you, not for your lord, not for any man. But he will do it for Rickon, who is none of those things. Rickon is not you. Rickon is not your lord, nor is Rickon a man. Nah. Clever wording there, Wyman Manderley. Dornish James says, fat red lips and yellow locks is the description of Donald Hill, sweet Donald Hill, the the archer on the wall. Thick lips and a head of golden curls is Theomor, the." Maester here, and that might be more hints that Donald Hill is a Lannister. Yeah, that is, in fact, yeah. Nina put forth that theory way back when that that Donald Hill was a Lannister bastard, and this uh, I mean, really does add to that. He
1: claims to be. Hmm? He claims to be, and then this is just like proof for it.
0: Yeah. Okay. That, yeah, you're right. That's that's a better way to put it. You're right. He does claim to be, and this is this is strong evidence that it, that it's true. He backs that up. Well said. Interestingly, as we close out this chapter. The Davos arc in this book is all in the first half. We've only got one more chapter. It's a big one. The North Remembers is, like I said, arguably the most popular chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. And it feels like it's near the end of the book in a lot of ways because it's so climactic, but it's like chapter 30. (laughs) So, yeah. Or is it... I forget. It might not be thirty, but it's really early in the book. It's it's not halfway through. The length through. you said
1: it was you were twenty six percent through, the book.
0: Yeah. So, so. there's there's seventy four chapters. I think. Hmm. So it's not quite halfway. So anyway, yeah. Um. All right, folks, thanks very much for coming today. Last week, we covered 174 minutes, 27 seconds. This week, it was 154.18. So far, we've covered 771 minutes of the 2,900. 26% of the way through, 26.4, that is. Don't forget to hit like on the video. It really boosts our chances of hitting the algorithm and getting other people to join in on Val Arboretus on YouTube. The same goes for iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher... Wait, we're not on Stitcher. (laughs) Uh, Spotify, of course. We're on Spotify, Anchor. Whatever podcast catcher you are on, you can leave a review. And those also do a lot of work, more than you might think, for getting us on lists and getting us out there. If you don't want to or can't afford to support us financially... There are lots of other ways to help, and that is one of them. Telling your friends, however, is probably our favorite way because there's really nothing like a pitch from someone that's really invested. That is the best there is. Like this whole, our whole show is a pitch for a song of ice and fire. <laughs> we mentioned a few of our other episodes this time. We're trying to stay on top of that whenever possible to give you all uh, pathways to learning more about certain of these rabbit holes. Most, all the three of the ones I'm about to say are ones that we've mentioned before recently because some of these same topics keep coming up. Wit and Wisdom of Stannis Baratheon, our two Nymeria episodes, and our two Manderly episodes are probably the most prominent. As always, I could remind you of the Blackfire series dealing with Aegon and all that. And of course, a variety of historical topics that are touched on very briefly. Next time, we have Reek 2. The gang goes to Moat Kaelin, aka 63 Flayed Ironmen.
1: John Five, an onion or an apple, aka 63 Wildling recruits.
0: Tyrion Six, the one with lots of scyvas, aka a Northern bear in Selhoris.
1: And finally, Daenerys Four, better the butcher than the meat, aka to tie a Meereenese knot or not? Mm. I say don't tie a Meereenese knot. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, I think she's gonna, unfortunately. (laughs) I don't, don't, I'm pretty sure, you know, we got to read forward to be sure, but I'm pretty sure Danny's gonna marry his daughter. (laughs) Thanks to everyone who came. Thanks to everyone who asked questions. Thanks to everyone who supported and, and or will support or has supported. We very much appreciate it. Thanks to Joe and Nina for their invaluable assistance making this episode so much better than it would have been if it was just us on our side helping. Thanks to the History of Westeros mods, and our mods on Discord, that's Sir Slorp for your assistance and work in facilitating our community discussions. It's a really great part of all of this. Again, our outlets for discussion are Flick, Facebook, Slack, and Discord. Slack is for patrons. All the rest are for anyone. You can find links in the description of either the video or the podcast, whichever one you're looking at, or you can just go search for them on the various places. Uh, Claradox, please check out Michael Clarfeld's website, claradox.de. That's with a K. You can see things like these awesome maps and many other excellent things. Thank you to Kevin McLeod, Jesse Koval, and Jesse Townsend for Joey Koval. God, geez, I, I keep doing that, man. Joey Townsend, Jesse Koval for their music help, Benjineer for the engineering of our sound, patrons for their financial support. And today on Here Be Dragons, check out their channel. They're covering Attack the Block today. Very cool.
1: That is a movie with John Boyega of Star Wars fame, one of his earliest gigs.
0: Oh, it's before Star Wars. Yes, before
1: Star Wars. It's a British sci-fi film. It's quite good.
0: Nice. Well, that sounds promising then, folks. If you have already seen it, then I definitely recommend checking them out. If you haven't, well, maybe you might want to watch that first and then check them out but I highly recommend Here Be Dragons in general. Until next time, folks, more Val Arboretus on the way.